The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the MJ Cast. Welcome one and all to our seventh annual Christmas special of the MJ Cast. It's been a year of changes, a year of progression, and a year of challenges across the world, not just in the world of Michael Jackson, but from pandemic variants and vaccines. 2021 has been another challenging year. We've had some changes here at the MJ Cast too, with the addition of Charlie Carter as our incredible audio producer and editor, alongside myself, Annalise, and Charles Thompson. The MJ Cast continues to grow and learn from our multitude of wonderful and unique guests in the circles of Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. For this Christmas special, we have once again managed to procure a very special guest, and I'll introduce them shortly. But first, I'd like to say how much I've enjoyed Season 7 and all of the guests we've had. And I want to take this opportunity to thank them all for taking the time to indulge us and the fan community with their wonderful stories. All right. Well, here we are, ready for another uh, episode of the MJ Cast. Exciting. Oh, boy, what a year. Lots of us have recently become parents, either for the first time or again. Oh, so congratulations to you guys. Elise, welcome back to the show. You haven't been on in a little while. Welcome back. You've had a baby in the meantime. Bryn is here. I do. I have a three-week-old baby who may be screaming in the background, so <laughs> I'll keep myself muted off off and on unless I'm speaking, <laughs> but super excited to be here. Yeah, that's great. And welcome, Bryn, to the world. That's incredible news, and yeah, yeah. it's wonderful to have you on the line again. Yeah, super excited. And uh, I will post a picture of Bryn in her Captain EO onesie eventually, (laughs) which Jamin very kindly sent me. So you guys will be seeing that on social media soon. How are you doing with mom life? I'm, I'm doing good. So, so Bryn was born on Thanksgiving night for those of us in the US on November 25th. So I'm three weeks in and it's been a lot. I have more respect than ever for all parents out there. I've been pretty sleepless, but we're starting to get in a routine. Uh, we have a CD that's been on high rotation of lullaby versions of Michael Jackson songs that nice. she likes a lot. And we're starting to, to, to get into the groove of things a little bit. But that is why I have not been on the last several episodes. So thanks, everybody, for your patience um, with that. And But I'm excited to have to be on this one and to say hi to everybody again and hoping that I'll be in more of a normal life um, routine when our next season starts too. Yeah. It's very nice. And we're also here with Charlie Carter, our audio editor. Welcome to the episode, your second time on the MJ cast now. And of course, you've also got baby Josie in the background, probably going to sing out here or there during the episode. Oh, you might hear her. We'll try and get a tune out of her, but uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, Charlie Thompson, Father Charlesmas, welcome to this episode. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) Do you have a baby in the background as well or what's the deal? Oh, please, no. No, thank God, no. (laughs) 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and last but absolutely not least, we are here with Taj Jackson. Taj, welcome back to the MJ Cast. Thank you for having me. Always, it's becoming a bit of an annual thing for you to pop into the Christmas special. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm a little under the weather, but this is going to be great. And Taj, of course, Toria has joined the Jackson family. And how's that all been? Yes. This, it was this time last year that you revealed to the community that, you know, you were having another baby. And Oh, yeah. 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 Um, she came one day after my grandma's birthday. We were trying to get her on May 4th as well, but she came May 5th. Oh. But um, it's Toria Catherine Sko Jackson. So Catherine is in the name and we're very honored in that way. But I, it's 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 amazing, and um, at least we we do use the lullaby, the Michael Jackson lullaby one oh, as well. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. so thank you. Yeah, that's it's been incredible <laughs> in in that way, just hearing hearing that. So, but yeah, new parenting, it, it's great. As yeah, a lot of sleepless nights, and both my babies are are sick in that way, which is thus why my voice sounds like this. But you know, we'll get over it. And we can't leave out baby Josie as well. I mean, Carter, oh, new wow. dad. How are you balancing the editing and dad life? Oh, it's oh, it's a challenge. There are many challenges, but it's just she's the biggest. I don't even know how to word it. Blessings. It sounds so blasé and so cliche, but it, it's exactly what it feels like to to have her. She's been fantastic. She's about ten weeks old now. I have to give a special shout out to my wife Jess. She's just been a trooper through the whole thing. She's been amazing. Got a new level of respect for her and. She's just been brilliant. And with Josie, uh, you go from times where you want to read that Samuel L. Jackson book out <laughs> and then she smiles at you and you just melt and it's just, yeah, there's nothing quite like it and you can't really put it into words unless you know. Yeah. Oh, that's real special. And Jamin, you have yeah. your news. <laughs> yeah. Super exciting. Got tell a bit us of more, news. tell us more. Well, I already put it on the MJ cast social media, but yeah, my wife Lee and I are expecting as well. So May 31st next year is the due date. We will be having another little baby to join Olivia. Huge congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. Do you guys know if it's a boy or a girl? You know, we haven't found out yet. We've got the 20 week scan coming up in a few weeks, so we we can decide then as well. But um, no, so far we've, we've, you know, manage to to not ask what it's going to be, hoping for a little surprise, and we'll see if it stays that way. But yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Now, is the idea of having two just completely overwhelming? Because I don't know how anyone has more than one child, having given birth to one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're probably going to go for three eventually because it's the magic oh, wow. number. Oh my gosh! But yeah, two <laughs> does seem overwhelming. But yeah, we're going for three for sure. <laughs> uh, that's exciting. That is exciting. And uh, yeah, Charlie, how's the fish? I'm delighted to announce that I still don't have any children and <laughs> and never will. <laughs> Do you have a fish, Charlie? <laughs> no, Aww. no. I prefer to visit. Okay. You know, once every couple of years, I'll go scuba diving or something, <laughs> say hello, give them some bread, <laughs> and then um, return to land. Yeah, no. Maybe we can have a whip round and get you a koi pond. Oh no, no, no! Yeah. I once tried to have a koi pond. I mean, how do you how do you go on a holiday? You know, I mean, you'd go away for two weeks to Los Angeles and hang out with Taj and come back to a <laughs> pond full of dead fish. It's too it's too much commitment. Well, it's funny you should say that. I had a pet coastal carpet python, and 
he was on a, a four or five week cycle of feeding and we came to America and I just, all I had to do was get someone to just change his water every now and then. And it was sweet. So snake, <laughs> that's the way forward. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful for us all to be here together with a bit of Christmas cheer and, and some news to discuss as well. We've got a few news topics we're going to get into this episode, then some main discussion topics a little bit later that we'll dig in on. So we might kick things off with, with the news. A new music video has come out recently just in the past few weeks it's christmas themed it's uh from the jackson five christmas album the song is santa claus is coming to town and it's received a new animated music video treatment from motown directed by troy brown and alex griffin the art director was Chaz bottoms it came out december 9th it's a really interesting mix of puppets and animation uh, and it starts off in the north pole with santa and mrs claus this was looking at some kind of cross between an ipad and an etch-a-sketch and they're seeing all these places around the world that have these terrible living conditions and so santa decides to fly out and improve these living conditions with with his magic and it's got some interesting things in there with like a jackson five kind of band performing at a concert i don't know did you guys get a chance to see this video yeah, I, I saw it. And um, so this is the second video that they have kind of redone. The first one was a couple of years ago, which was I saw Mommy Kissing mm-hmm. Santa Claus, I believe. And it was sort of the same style kind of contemporary cartoons, but without that one, I don't think had any puppets in it. And in like the age of YouTube, I think having kind of a fresh look for you know what pops up on your screen while you're streaming is always a plus and of course you know Jackson 5's to me like define christmas i mean that album is so iconic and is always for everyone whether or not you're even a huge you know Jackson's fan is always part of the christmas season so i think having this fresh look for this video is a good thing overall and i like that it's inclusive but i do find the misrepresentation of the group that's supposed to be the Jackson 5, except not at all, is a little bit disconcerting. But there are other elements of it that I do enjoy and think make the feel of the song and the look of it when it again, when it pops up on your YouTube screen, feel contemporary and fresh in a way that's probably a great thing. I haven't seen the video at all. Um, I was hoping that it would have either the classic Jackson 5 cartoon feel or maybe a Ranklin Bass kind of vibe since it has Christmas and the Jackson 5. But I don't know. I'll reserve comment until I see it. I think I'd sort of agree with Taj there in that, uh, even though he hasn't seen it, but it's sort of the mixture of Muppet puppets and Family Guy style cartoon. I'm not quite sure how they come together. And I agree that the original Jackson 5 cartoon in there somewhere would have at least been relevant. Yeah. Well, we're we're on this nostalgic kick and everyone is really kind of remembering all those things and so I'm super happy something's out so I shouldn't complain. Yeah, I, it definitely is weird with that little scene where they zoom in on the musical concert and there's a band on stage that kind of looks like the Jackson 5 but not like they're standing in the same arrangement that the brothers did and they're even like at the same heights. <laughs> they look this <laughs> as all the different brothers and there's a character in the middle that looks like Michael. Then there's like female guitarists and it's it's yeah, weird. It's kind of I, I'm wondering whether there was some kind of a rights issue or Surely not. It's Motown we're talking about, but I don't know why they made that creative decision, but it definitely is a little bit of a weird moment in the video. 
maybe, yeah, I don't even know if they approached the family for that. I mean, I could be wrong, but if I called up my dad, he probably doesn't even know that it exists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's good to to have the Jackson Five music published again, if you like, even if it's in a in a way that's perhaps not quite as reflecting the quality of the original. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, more and more generations are discovering the music and during Christmas time, especially those two songs really take off. So as I said earlier, even though I'm kind of making jokes, I'm super appreciative that something is out right now for people to see and a new generation can watch. Well, the Jackson five own Christmas because Frosty the Snowman is a huge song also. I think kind of people forget that, but the Jackson Five are just in constant rotation at Christmas every year. It's, it's great to hear. I was with a friend last night and Frosty the Snowman came on the, the radio. I was tapping away to it. It's such a great track, but the yeah. video sucks <laughs> <laughs> for, for this thing, this, this new video thing. I thought it was, when you sent it to me, I thought it was like Taj said, I thought it was going to be like the old Jackson Five cartoon. And then when it came on, I was like, oh, fuck this and just turn it off again. <laughs> do you do you think <laughs> uh, do you think this style, though, like works for like a young YouTube listener? I mean, is there what are they going for here? I guess that's my ultimate question. Um, well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask uh, about <laughs> as out of tune with young YouTube people as you could get. But uh, it's not working for me. Yeah, I don't really know, Elise. Maybe it's like a situation of them not having a very high budget and uh, <laughs> maybe they got, I don't know, these art directors and, and people that maybe don't have a whole lot of uh, experience or resources. I'm not really sure. It could be that. Perhaps it's um, sometimes we have to remember that these projects that are probably done by people without the support of the estate, for example, perhaps working on a lower budget. There's a hell of a lot of work that goes into even a three or four minute video. So the effort that they've put in is commendable. I guess we're all just questioning why at the moment. Yeah. And it also raises questions around um, when, when you think about the Michael Jackson estate and all the projects they've done over the last 10 years, they've all focused on really Michael as an adult solo artist, not there's nothing that really focuses on the the Jackson's era. There's nothing that focuses on the Jackson five era. Is that an intentional decision or is that because there's other entities that own the rights to those albums and eras? Can they not do things with that? Well, it seems like where the estate is concerned, there's often a concerted attempt to denigrate the family or suppress or dismiss anything that the family was involved in. So it's not necessarily surprising that they've not gone back and focused on that era. But one of the best projects that has come out posthumously was, um, or a couple of the best projects that have come out posthumously were actually the Hippo Select Jackson 5 box sets that they put out. Although I can't remember. One of them was called Rare Pearls. I think the other was called um, Hello World. It was Hello that big World. yellow one. Oh, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that was glorious. That was a really beautiful set, actually. Mine arrived damaged, of course. Of course <laughs> it arrived damaged. So that was irritating, <laughs> but it still was a lovely set. And Rare Pearls was a fantastic 
piece of work as well. And then there was also that set, which I didn't get because it was too expensive, but it was the box set, which was shaped like the van from the Jackson 5 cartoon. Do you remember that? Right. Yes. I didn't get that. It was too much. But that looked like a great set as well. Some There's a lot of care and love that's gone into some of those Jackson 5 re-releases, some of which were limited edition, actually. And you do kind of wonder if it's profitable, if it's worth doing to produce, you know, a limited run of, say, 5,000 of these beautiful, well-made box sets. Why does the estate never do this for any other projects? Because when you ask that question, what you tend to get back from certain people is oh, well, there's no money in physical products anymore and it's a waste of time. But it's clearly not a waste of time. If Hippo selects, because think of the work, the time that's gone into producing those Jackson 5 sets to only produce 5,000 of them, there must be profit in it or they wouldn't be doing it because otherwise they'd be deranged to do that if there was no profit in it. So I kind of don't buy into this argument that there's no profit in it for the estate to put out dangerous 25 box sets and all that kind of stuff it just seems like a massive missed opportunity so taj take us um a little bit inside the thoughts of the jackson family is there oh have you heard other family members within your family have particular points of view around how there is such an emphasis on michael's solo career and maybe not as much on the jackson five and jackson's eras in terms of re-releases well, obviously, I don't speak for everyone in the family, um, just mm-hmm. one part of the family. I think it's sometimes hard to just watch as the emphasis is on Michael and his solo career because, obviously, being the son of Tito, I know that, that there's a journey involved, and that journey started as them as kids, and it wasn't only Michael in that journey. You know, he was supported by his brothers. And so it's hard watching that. And I'm just, I've always kept my eyes and ears open to make sure that the Jackson 5 legacy and the Jacksons, you know, is not somehow miraculously downplayed or erased in a way in terms of their contribution, because people forget they kind of, there's this generation of people that have grown up just as, just know Michael as a solo artist. While I'm still the generation of watching the Jackson 5 cartoons and watching that Mm. coming home from school. So it's just a different era and a different age, but I guess they're both equally important in a way because you have a lot of fans that are Jackson 5 fans that, as we were talking about the Christmas songs and stuff like that, that every time I want you back comes on, you know, anything it makes me so proud and I love that song. So it's just like, yeah, I think we have to be very cautious of it, but I heard little rumblings from different family members, but it's not anything. It's just that concern of, you know, making sure that everyone gets their dues in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even at the MJ cast, we can be doing more of that. You know, like we've, I was talking to Sean the other day, a friend of the show, Sean Shackleford. He loves the Jackson five and the Jackson's eras. And of course he was on our last two roundtable episodes. And we were talking about, you know, next year, maybe being able to shine a light on maybe a classic album from the seventies or something like that. Cause there is a tendency in the community to really just focus on that work from the eighties onwards. But man, there was some incredible groundbreaking stuff going on from the Jackson family before that. 
Well, and, and also, you know, being a huge fan of Michael in general, you know, and I'm talking about myself, you get to see the progression. You get to see, it's almost like watching an actor do earlier movies and mm. get to see their craft and perfecting their craft and how certain phrases or certain dance moves kind of come to being or perfected in a way as he goes along. So it's that transformation or metamorphosis that's kind of exciting too, going down that journey. Like you're saying, occasionally you might go back and watch a tour from before a time that's really famous. Like, for example, Motown 25, you've got obviously Billie Jean and you've got the fedora hat and the glove. And then I was watching, I think it was like the Triumph tour, really bad quality on YouTube, but you've got like Michael dancing around in a fedora hat. And I'm like, hang on a sec. This is like before Billie Jean was even a thing. It was before Motown 25. But you see like, you know, Michael wearing costume making costume choices that later on blow up in his career and they become associated with a certain thing, but he was doing that earlier on as well. Exactly. All right, moving on. So uh, recently uh, a UK tabloid Daily Mail managed to put out some new photos of, of Neverland, some aerial photos, and these are of particular note because you can see carnival rides have been placed back at Neverland we had an episode where a friend of the show, Christina, came on and talked about the rides uh, being put back at Neverland. One thing that's important to note is that these rides aren't the original rides that Michael had there. So there's a carousel back there. There's other different rides. We thought they might have only been going there for a small amount of time, maybe for some kind of charity event and then being taken away again. But months later, they're still there in these photographs. So it's kind of raised the question around like, what what are they there for? Are they permanently going to be there? Some fans have talked about them maybe being there for some kind of biopic filming, but I think that's a bit of a reach because there's been no rumblings about who's involved in scripting or directing that. So to even talk about filming that seems really, really, really early. Yeah, I'm just curious why they're there. And I'm curious why Ron Burkle, if he's going to the effort of putting rides back there, why not try to buy back the original rides, which are just have been sold off to, from what I understand, just other carnival owners and different things. I, I had a wonderful conversation with Ron. I don't remember if it was this year or last year, but it was pretty recent after his purchase of Neverland. Before that, I was very concerned because I wanted to make sure it's always been something sacred to me and a home to me. And I wanted to make sure that it was in the right hands. Not like I could do anything about it, but it was something that I guess sleeping better at night. And, you know, I, I love the conversation with Ron about it. And I don't know exactly what I could discuss or what I can't discuss, but I can tell you probably what I know I can discuss. And Ron is really interested in capturing the magic of what Michael presented at Neverland. He has, I think it's grandchildren, that are a little older in age. So that's one of the reasons you're not seeing the same rides line up mm -hmm. in a way, because he's still trying to capture that magic, but he's also trying to make it for his, his family as well. But Ron was also very generous in, in talking about how he wanted to honor Michael at times and, and invite kids to Neverland, um, underprivileged kids or sick kids, and keep that memory alive because that's what Neverland represents too. And when he told me that, that was something that made me really happy and excited because it's 
kind of what why Neverland was there in the first place. So, I mean, if he does that every once in a while, that would be incredible as well. Taj, have you or any other members of the Jackson family been up to Neverland since Ron purchased it? I personally have not. That's not to say that I couldn't go. It's just I haven't asked. I think Prince has gone a couple of times. I'm not sure about that. I know he's gone at least once, but I haven't gone. I can add that just from the like outsider fan perspective, of course, I was up there in April and there was a lot going on there. There were all kinds of cars coming in and out and lots of trailers that my friend uh, Constantinos was convinced were film trailers. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was a lot of, of buzzing around um, back and forth that we were very curious about. So for me, it's really interesting to see how all these things are lining up. Um, I wonder about the rides too. I mean, those original rides, a lot of us, anybody in California, we do, they they make the rounds at all the state fairs now. So I have actually been on some of those rides. And at this point, they probably are, frankly, kind of old and stuff. So I think bringing in new rides is probably, that evoke the originals is probably a good idea. But I don't know, I think it's interesting to see how things are are lining up. And Taj, so interesting too, to hear your um, input on on what's going on. But it, it certainly does seem like, especially now with the, that, you know, the flowers are even being like planted again, just everything, that whole beautiful flower clock and everything's kind of coming back. It's really encouraging and quite, quite beautiful. And it seems like Burkle's heart really is in the right place with everything he's doing. Yeah. And, and that's well said because that, that was a, the main concern for me is just what, because it costs so much. Um, I just know that from being there, it costs so much to upkeep that place in general. So it, it really is an investment in keeping it looking like it should look in that way. And I, seeing the aerials as well and seeing the photographs, it gives me a big smile on my face seeing it kind of take shape. Taj, have you got any history yourself with Ron Burkle? Was he a presence in uh, your life when you know Michael was alive or anything like that? I did not know Ron Burkle personally. I know that he was around my uncle a lot. I just there's certain people that I was very familiar with and certain people I wasn't. So mm-hmm. when I got the chance to meet Ron, it was a new experience. So it wasn't something that I had met him in the past and was kind of rekindling something or talking about something that we had talked about before. This was a brand new experience. So Carter, you yourself have actually flown over Neverland and taken some photos. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So my wife and I had a month-long honeymoon in the USA back in 2019. So before COVID was a, a thing, we went to many places across the States to do with Michael Jackson. But the highlight for me was being able to go up to the front gates of Neverland Ranch and then the following, or a few hours later, be able to go up and assess the 172 and view the property from the air. Now, obviously, us as fans, we realize the scale of the place. It's 2,700 acres. And to put that in perspective, Central Park in New York is about 800 acres. So Neverland is truly massive. But even without the rides and without the upkeep, it still looked spectacular from the air. And when we were at the front gates, there was actually a guy in the security hut there who was quite talkative, very friendly, and there was vehicles going in and out. So there was obviously some kind of maintenance going on. But yeah, to view the property from the air was one thing. To visit it on the ground would be quite another. So Taj, I'm I'm supremely jealous that you've obviously had the the link to to be able to spend a lot of time there. It must have been amazing. Beyond, um, I still like, 
not only pinch myself, I'm just so grateful. I mean, I got to live there. So it's, it's just, it is, I consider it home for a, a good two years. So for me, it's just in general, I'm so grateful. I have to say I was a little bit conflicted about it in terms of should I take a plane over the top or not? Am I invading privacy? And to a certain extent, yes, I was. Is that something that you know that your uncle was pretty vociferous about when he was alive, not seeing people in helicopters and aircraft go over the top? It was just part of what he experienced. It was part of the journey for him. In general, he never made a conscious decision of like, mentioning like oh there's the press or there's fans up there or whatever it was just it was normal to him that was just part of his normal life i don't think he gave it much thought beyond that i mean obviously if there's something going on that was you know super private like a wedding or something and there's all these helicopters hovering and stuff like that that can be very distracting but when it comes to just the casual flyover or whatever, I don't think that really bothered him that much. I think there was an issue, wasn't there, with because the property was so big, there were occasions where fans tried to parachute onto a remote part of the property and then hike in, which must just be extraordinary to be living in a world where that is a potential issue, you know, to, to live in a world where people try and parachute into your back garden, essentially. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that could, that could, that, that could be interesting. I think also with cameras and, and such high powerful lenses in general, that invasion of privacy is also a concern. They could be up there in the sky in a helicopter and with the zoom capabilities of that day, could zoom in to the point where you would think they were only about 50 feet away. So it's just in that way, that invasion of privacy could be hard, but it was something that I think he was kind of, I don't want to say used to because you never get used to it, but I think he lived with it. What were the years that you were living there? You said you were living there for two years. That's quite amazing. When were you there? I lived at Neverland during the trial. I was there from that trial period onwards until he went to Bahrain. And then I was kind of like the hoarder that was there that just stay, stayed there on property for a little while until it was in an abandoned state, I would say. And that was really hard because I was someone that saw it at its best, Neverland. And then I saw it when it was literally abandoned because of what it represented to Michael at that point, which was all the chaos and all the, you know, just the invasion of privacy that that case had brought to him. So I stayed there as long as I could because I've always thought of it as magical for me. But then it, there's a certain point where I'm like, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta leave now. So, but I, I've always loved Neverland. It's always been an important part of my life. I'm happy that it's getting restored to a, a point where people are going to be able to appreciate it. I think when we were over there, we, we both commented on how beautiful that area was and a bit of regret that we only spent one night in Solvang and didn't get to explore the immediate area around Los Olivos and Solvang. So we'd definitely like to go back there, that's for sure. Taj, can I ask you a question? I don't know if you'll really have any thoughts on this or not, but I mean, how do you feel about fans who are going and being respectful and sitting outside like the front gates <laughs> that sort of thing. Do you feel like that's 
I don't know, just as a family member, do you feel like that even that is kind of an invasion at all of what is kind of a sacred family place? Or do you feel like that is something that can be respectfully done and is okay for fans to be doing? <laughs> What's your your feeling about that as a family member? I've always um, interpreted it as love. And you, you have to remember, I grew up at Havenhurst and Havenhurst always had fans outside the gate across the street. And so for me, it was a appreciation and a symbol of love. So I never took it for granted. I never looked at it as like, why are they still here? Why would they make the trip over to Neverland to be there just to be at the gate? I always appreciated that and respected that. And I understood it to this day. I understood it. I mean, my wife and I, we went to Solvain um, for an anniversary. And while we were there, we were doing some wine tasting and I noticed one of the streets was one of the streets of Neverland. Like it was, it was, I'm like, oh, Neverland's up that street. And so this was before Ron Burkle had purchased it, but we went up there and we went to the gates. We didn't get in, but <laughs> we went there and we went to the gates. So we kind of experienced it that way, just sitting at the gate and waiting and all that stuff. And it's just, it's such a magical place in general. And I would never, ever uh, look down on a fan that went to Neverland or went to Havenhurst or any of those other places or Forest Lawn. It's it's an act of love and an act of appreciation. So I not only respect it, um, I'm thankful for it. See, when we went, we initially we got there and it was dark because we'd just driven from San Francisco. And I got there and I saw all the messages on the wall and I thought, right, well, when we come back tomorrow, I'll bring a Sharpie and I'll, I'll write something on the wall. But then I was a bit conflicted about that because as much as they are messages of love, I was thinking, well, is it also graffiti? Is it going to last? What's going to happen? And in the end, my memory made the decision for me because I forgot to get a Sharpie before we, <laughs> we went out there. I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote on a piece of paper and left it in the wall, fully cognizant of the fact that it wasn't going to last long. Um, yeah. But, yeah, seeing all the messages up there was quite moving as well. Yeah, it is. And and I think that's something that Michael would have loved in, in general. Just in, I don't think it's something that he looked at it as graffiti at all. Next news topic. Artist Mark Ryden has shared never before seen early concept art for the Dangerous album cover. Of course, if you don't know who Mark Ryden is, he's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant American painter, part of the lowbrow or pop surrealist art movement, and has the nickname, actually, I didn't know this until I researched it, but he has the nickname, the King of Pop Surrealism. His aesthetic is developed from very subtle amalgams of many sources, for example, neoclassical painters to things like little golden books, old toys, anatomical models, stuffed animals, skeletons, and religious symbols. His work is is something to really, really behold. These pieces of work that he's shown now are super high quality pencil sketches that were done early on in the process of developing the dangerous album cover. And there's lots of elements of artworks that didn't make it onto the cover that you can see here. What really blew me away is that all of the characters, I guess, on the Dangerous album cover actually come from their own distinct art pieces that he created around them with their own scenes. I had no idea that was the case, but the Dangerous album cover really is the finished product of bringing in all of these different distinct art pieces into one. 
and it's made up of lots of different distinct elements. I was blown away by that to see all these uh, separate pieces that he created. It's uh, way more complex than I originally thought. He was given five days to come up with the concepts for Michael. In an interview that I read of his, he said that he was given early parameters like it's got to be focusing on Michael's eyes, uh, showing the earth in peril, including children and animals, and that it could be scary but still fun. And then outside of those guidelines, he was given freedom to develop something out of his imagination, and that's where we got the dangerous cover. It was really, really special to see these pieces. And I'm I'm wondering if you guys uh, had a chance to see them as well. I can't believe he did all of these in five days. They're Mm. absolutely stunning. Each of these pieces is just a total work of gorgeous, like complex art with a really interesting story going on. So please do check them out at the link in our show notes. And it's really interesting to see the different elements that and how they would ultimately come together in the final product. But they all have, of course, those gorgeous eyes at the as the centerpiece, but with these different characters and kind of a different narrative going on in each in each version. There is one, of course, that you can see became really the main inspiration for the the final version. But but no, these are wonderful. Mark Ryden is an artist who I have been a huge fan of even, you know, apart from Michael Jackson, um, for a long time, I've gone to his shows in LA and things like that. And his work really is just absolutely stunning. So for me, seeing him come together with the Dangerous album cover is just like, to me, just peak everything. (laughs) It's so marvelous. Um, I actually have to say too, I just, my husband, very kindly, when I was in the last weeks of my pregnancy, got me the vinyl uh, version of the Dangerous album. And just even having that art on that wonderful big vinyl um, edition and really getting to look at it in more detail, there is so much there to explore. I mean, as any fan knows, of course, but, um, but yeah, for me, seeing some of the inspiration here and also just some of the instructions that MJ gave him um, to put this together is quite fascinating. But yeah, please do look those up. It's interesting too to see the different ways I think it could have gone. This character, there's one character who has like a bunch of arms and (laughs) there's kind of like a DNA thing going on and some fascinating, strange little stuff. But this sort of haunting, dark, yet also whimsical look that he portrayed in each of these versions, I think is really uh, quite compelling. I think any artist who can create something so intricate is deserving of credit anyway. But like Elise said, to create that in five days is just incredible. And to have all those little nods to Michael, such as, you know, Michael as a child, Macaulay Culkin, I think Elizabeth Taylor is in there somewhere, Afghan Dogs, Bubbles the Chimp, Michael's Eyes, Fairground Rides. It's just an incredible piece of artwork. But on top of that, to create multiple other concepts for Michael to choose from, in such a short period of time, is just even more outstanding. Well, they are stunning. They're absolutely beautiful and incredible to think that they're hand-drawn because everything about them is just so – even when you look at whatever they're drawn on, I don't know whether it's paper or canvas or whatever, but they're just so perfectly proportioned and everything. They're just absolutely staggering. The Dangerous cover has got to be the best – album cover i think of of michael's whole career and there's such an interesting world that it creates and you wonder if the promotion had not been interrupted in the way that it was whether this artwork might have ended up featuring a little 
more in the concepts for the videos that were coming and that kind of thing. I know that there was some kind of commercial where David Lynch directed it, and it was very much based on elements of the album artwork, which was a great idea, just such a clever idea. Of all the people you could think of to bring this cover to life, David Lynch has got to be the most perfect. It's just an absolutely stunning final piece and these concepts. When A couple of years ago, there was... um, an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in London of Michael Jackson-themed artworks. I'm just racking my brain here trying to think what it was called, and I've got a feeling it was called On the Wall. I think you're right. Yeah, that was it. It was okay. It was kind of, you know, there was a bunch of stuff in there that, to my perhaps Philistine eyes, was like, what the hell is this? But the centerpiece of that exhibition was the original hand-painted dangerous cover which even had a custom frame as well it had this extraordinary frame which was built specifically to to frame the album cover it was just it was amazing you know we spent a lot of time there looking at that artwork and it's just a masterpiece that frame was also designed and created by mark ryden as well more recently and actually, Mark Ryden is somebody I would love to interview one day. He would, <laughs> I've tried a number of times to reach out to him to get him on the MJ cast and he hasn't replied, but oh boy, would that be incredible. I have so, so many questions I would like to ask him. He has alluded to in other interviews that he did get a chance to spend time with Michael himself and get to know him and, and get his uh, inspirations for the cover as well. So one day, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes, I have to make that happen. For me, the album's a masterpiece. The cover is incredible. I still, to this day, haven't discovered half the stuff that's on it in terms of the symbolism. And it's one of those things that I'm kind of saving that for a special day because I just, it's, there's so much going on on, in this cover, but it's so magical to look at. But also, as Elise said, with the eyes, those eyes, you know, they captivate you. So it was so exciting seeing the sketches. And you're right about the five days. It was like, wow, you know, doing all that in five days is just amazing in itself. But for me, it's my favorite artwork that has been done on my uncle. I do think it is incredible how, yeah, like you're alluding to Taj's, I mean, for as many times as I've looked at that cover Every time I see something that I didn't notice before, I I really think it's one of the most iconic albums of any artist of all time. It's so incredible and it never gets old. It just always feels fresh every time you look at it. It hasn't like, you know, quote unquote aged at all. It's yeah, it's absolutely iconic. Absolutely. Well, what's also interesting about it is that you would think that Mark was a person that hung around Michael Jackson for years and or decades because it encompasses him so well. This is like looking at this cover. It's almost like the world of Michael Jackson. It's something that it seems like he would have created every character in here and had a reason for every character. So it's that synergy of artist and artist. And so I love that aspect of it. He really captured Michael Jackson in this. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. Moving on to the next news topic. Rapper Polo G has released an original song and video that is a tribute to Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal. 
Now, if you don't know who Polo G is, he is a 22-year-old American rapper. His first album came out in 2019, peaked at number six on the Billboard 200, and then he's recently released a new album called Hall of Fame, his third album, which peaked at number one. And the deluxe edition of this album was reissued recently and contains a song called Bad Man, Smooth Criminal, and it samples MJ. Now, the song was produced by Khaled Roheim, and the video was set in a casino full of gangsters. And I actually quite like this song. He sings in it. He raps in it. He really pays homage to the original video and honors the original melodies in the music as well. I like how he's got dreadlocks in it, but he's kind of fashioned them in MJ style. And there's a cool message at the end where he sort of thanks the fans and the Michael Jackson estate as well. It's not like the most expensive, extravagant production or anything like that, but I I think it's a really cool little tribute to Michael Jackson. Yeah, I was not familiar with Polo G before this, but I have been especially this year, I've been very out of touch with any contemporary <laughs> music. But no, it was great to see it's it was great to see that it's just like a very much like embracing being a tribute to MJ. I mean, it really goes out of his, its way to do that. And it even has like, there's someone kind of doing some MJ dancing at one point, um, and kind of a silhouette. And he's, of course, wearing the white suit and everything to evoke the smooth criminal video. I, I'm a little curious about that message at the end. So at the very end, it says, we're truly grateful for all your support of the release of this song and music video. MJ is loved around the world. That's awesome to see. What I'm curious about, though, is this one line that says, we used this opportunity to represent this song for the future. And what I'm curious about is, yes, it samples MJ and, you know, fantastic, of course, Smooth Criminal, iconic song, love it so much, love to see it sampled, love to see it hopefully kind of carry on to the next generation who maybe hasn't discovered the original yet. I think that's all positive. But to me, though, it's also like, I mean, it has nothing really to do other than these, you know, kind of iconic, like little references. It has nothing really to do with Smooth Criminal. I mean, it seems like it's its own thing, too. So this whole idea that it's representing this song for the future. I don't know. I'm curious about any of your takes on that. And if you see this as like, like this video is actually carrying this song to the next generation, or is he actually trying to just kind of like, you know, mooch off a great sample, <laughs> great, you know, the Annie, are you okay? Lyric. I mean, wh- what it really is like going on here. Um, maybe I need to know more about this artist. To, to comment on it myself. But do you guys have any thoughts about that? I can say as an artist in general, um, hearing the song and the rap and hearing the way that the music was implemented into the, the song, I'd never thought someone could rap over Smooth Criminal. Like it's it's a weird song to, to try and rap over, but he did and it works for what it is. And I always appreciate homages because it's something that, yes, it's not the original, but at the same time, it can be something that brings a new fan base to Michael Jackson because someone that is a fan of Polo G now might discover Michael Jackson or might look into Michael Jackson. And then that leads to the Jackson five or the Jacksons or other stuff as well. Janet, the toys, Ruby, you know, so there's three T three T. I didn't, you know, it's sad. I didn't even think about three T. That's the, I should have, that should have been on my radar, but it's like, that's what 
it is for um, in general when it comes down to these homages or these songs, because when it comes to YouTube, that algorithm, you don't know. I mean, as much as people think they know how it works, I've been there where I've one song leads to another song. It's like, Oh, there's Michael Jackson's smooth criminal. Let me click on that now. And so now they get to see the original one, the masterpiece in action. And so I just, I've always been appreciative of that, even when when Drake did the the song, not the Michael Jackson song, but the TikTok kind of that became a TikTok trend or whatever. But that part of that song, so I just I've always liked that. I don't know, maybe I'm different. Maybe other family members might have a different opinion, but for me, I've always been appreciative of people being paying homage to artists in general, as Michael did. To be honest, the, the the rap genre is not something I'm particularly massive on, but it doesn't sound too bad. And just watching the video, it's, it seems to be a bit of a light-hearted take on – obviously, there's the homage to Smooth Criminal and You Rock My World, I think, as well. It sort of had that vibe about it too. But then it's light-hearted in that he wins the fight by throwing a bottle at the guy's head. You know, it's sort <laughs> of – it just – yeah, it, it's a light-hearted video and that made it look quite fun. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's, it's someone that obviously is a fan of Michael showing that appreciation to Michael through a, a video. Yeah. And that's, that's obviously happened with Smooth Criminal before. Famously, the Alien Ant Farm cover of that song, I believe, gave the song a whole new lease on life, really. I mean, Smooth Criminal was always a classic Michael Jackson song, a, a, a brilliant hit in the 80s but when that song came back as an alien ant farm cover in i can't remember when it was it was the 2000s i was like in grade 10 or something 2001 yeah yeah so all right pretty much around the same time as invincible you know it's uh, i'm not really into heavy metal or you know hardcore sort of music like that but you know that was a pretty cool cover like it it you know, it was really fun. And the amount of references in that video to Michael Jackson, there's thriller references, there's all kind of references. Taj, like you're saying, that cover itself really brought a whole new generation of young teenagers that might have been more into the rock scene were getting more into Michael Jackson. So I, I get that. Yeah. And also, you, you have to remember, Michael approved it because he was alive at that time. So he was always good at that stuff, of just approving those kind of things. Uh, Charlie Thompson, I have got to learn what your thoughts are on Polo G's cover of Smooth Criminal. Well, as you can imagine, I am a devout fan of um, Mr. G. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's very handsome. (laughs) And um, it was a nice jacket. And uh, (laughs) I mean, goodness. But... You know, I'm not sure. I'm. It's. Uh, I'm indifferent. Uh, you probably wanted me to hate it, did you? Yeah, kind of. That's all right. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't hate it. I'm just kind of. Charles like, Thompson didn't hate it. I'm unchanged by having watched it. <laughs> Charlie did not hate something. That's the headline. <laughs> I, I think we're. Charlie Thompson and I have both agreed at a previous episode is that when someone tries to do a Michael Jackson song, it's inevitably never as good as the original. Having said that, I think that Fallout Boys, Beat It, and Alien Ant Farm, Smooth Criminal are two anomalies, exceptions to the rule. I think they're fantastic songs. 
yeah, and and they bring a whole new generation and a whole new uh, genre to that era of Michael Jackson that you know people discovering him again for sure. Let's move into talking about MJ the musical. Now, there's been some reviews come out already. Of course, it's been playing on Broadway for the past couple of weeks, I think. New York Times have a review, and there's a bunch of fan reviews on YouTube. But there was a particular review that I really, really liked and and kind of wanted to highlight. Uh, It's by a guy called Bobby Huntley II. I'll link to him in the show notes. And this is a very, very special review. He and a friend had gone to see it. And these two guys have been friends for decades, they were saying in the video. They've been interacting on fan forums and chat for years and years and years. And then they met for the first time at this musical. And so they they went to see it together and they came out and they just sat down and they vlogged their thoughts in about 15 minutes. And I, you know, I've been like many fans watching Twitter to see what people's thoughts are as they've gone to see it and and put it online. And it's been really interesting to see some of the positives and some of the negatives. And that's exactly what Bobby Hunter does in his review. It's like a bit of a QA. These two guys are going back and forth and they're asking, like, okay, tell me a good thing about it and then tell me a negative thing about it, then a good thing. And it keeps going back and forth and it's really good. But they sort of talk about the good things being like, you know, including some rare Michael Jackson songs. Apparently, the song Price of Fame is used in it, which I wouldn't have expected. They love the production. They love the cast. They said that a highlight of the show is that it places an emphasis on reaffirming Michael Jackson as a proud black man and his impact on the world as a black performer. They loved the Jackson 5 segment. They said it was incredibly colorful and positive and a highlight of the show and a very exciting vibe. But then they... they Essentially, what my concern is, and I I do have some concerns around this, I haven't seen it, so I've got to be careful about how I talk about it. Obviously, this is not any first-hand information. But when the show first premiered, we started to see on Twitter some little concerning tweets come out about uh, how the Jackson family have been portrayed in it. And then with Bobby Hunter's review, he goes into detail about that, really saying that the family in general are sort of shown as quite villainous. We've even heard there's a section of the musical where Michael Jackson is being taunted or abused by Joseph Jackson to the history track Money. This really concerns me because I don't like the idea of Michael Jackson's art being repurposed to push some kind of narrative about the family. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but it does really, really worry me when the Jackson family in general are being portrayed that way. We know that that's been a trend over the years, especially when Michael was alive for the media to push that kind of narrative. And I know that the person who wrote this play, Lynn Nottage, is a character that I would you know, consider pretty controversial as well, having made some comments online about Michael's you know, um, relationship with children, which is, in my opinion, when she made those comments, the estate should have stopped working with her. But nevertheless, it it seems as though there's some other concerning points of view that she's put into this uh, play as well. The other concerns were that some of the actors apparently play different people in the show. Like the actor who plays Joe Jackson also apparently plays a road manager or something on the Dangerous Tour and it kind of gets confusing because they don't change costumes or hair. (laughs) So you're like, you think it's Joe Jackson, but it's actually somebody else. There's also some misinformation around the family and they're like the Destiny album being a flop. 
but I mean, it was a platinum album, huge tour hit singles. So that's kind of weird. They also had some issues with the timeline as well, getting some timeline stuff wrong. And they actually said, this was interesting. I didn't expect this, but they actually said there was too much music. (laughs) They said that it felt more like kind of a concert and that there could have been a lot more acting and dialogue to sort of flesh it out rather than just being song after song. And and then at the end, apparently it sort of goes, they said it goes full sister act with, with medleys of songs and sort of strange lyrical inclusion that don't have a lot to do with Michael. But they said all in all, there was some really great, great stuff in there, but some concerning things in there about how the family is portrayed. And before we all sort of jump in and talk about it, I guess, I, Taj, I wanted to ask you, I know you said earlier that you you don't represent the whole Jackson family, and I, I totally appreciate that, but has there been any conversation within the family about the, the musical yet, and um, have any of you seen it? There hasn't been any conversation yet amongst the family. I haven't seen it, obviously. It is a concern for me, though, in terms of that narrative of – the family being this type of boogeyman kind of thing that's kind of represents everything that made Michael do what he did and, and this and that and all the decisions he made in terms of business decisions or this and that. So it kind of frustrates me that that's the family's kind of become a, a scapegoat in that way. I don't think uh, that's fair. There's a lot of different scenarios that have led to that when it comes to Michael and his brothers. It's like any family. There's ups and downs. There's there's a lot to unpack when it comes to family. Hearing words like dysfunctional is a hard word to hear because I would be so hesitant to go around and, and call other people's families dysfunctional, but I know every family fights. So why is our family called dysfunctional? Because we're under a microscope. So that is one of the things that always bothers me. It's a word that's been thrown around in the media, and it's kind of just like wacko jacko. They've tossed that dysfunctional word when it comes to our family, and it's kind of stuck. It doesn't matter what we do or how we come together. We're always going to be labeled dysfunctional because that's what the media wants us to be. It's been hard. I'm hesitant because I haven't seen it yet. So I'm hesitant to go off of just someone else's review, but that does concern me when that's their interpretation that the family is put in a bad light. I think it's hard when you have an outsider looking in and I'll talk about the reviewer. I'm talking about the person that wrote the thing. They're not in the family. They didn't live that life. So they don't understand the dynamics of everything that went along in there in terms of why things were done the way they were. I think as an outsider looking in, it's easy to say, oh, this is the bad guy. This is the good guy. But there's a lot more going on than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's an element of lazy journalism about this and lack of proper research and that they'll follow a story that's been told and told and told before that doesn't necessarily have much truth to it? Just for me being part of understanding conflict in terms of movies and Hollywood in any good story, you have to have a villain. You have to have someone that is labeled a villain for your protagonist to overcome. They've labeled Joe Jackson, that person. And, you know, no matter what he has to fill that role and he has to be everything that was wrong with Michael Jackson, which to me, there was nothing wrong with Michael Jackson, but I'm just saying in terms of the way they portray it, it's like, Oh, he's the scapegoat for everything that every decision that was made that Michael made in that way. So it's very concerning to me. Yes, there is a lot 
that happened with Joe and Michael that did lead to a lot of that in terms of how he was, I shouldn't say brought up. Joe was very strict on all of the brothers in that way. Michael being extremely sensitive and I take my two brothers and myself and it's like my mom could yell at us or could even spank us. It'll affect us each in different ways. I was probably the one that was like, oh, well, we deserved it. <laughs> you know, my, and I don't know what my other brothers were thinking, but that's how I always thought of it. Like, there's a reason. Now, not, that's not saying that, you know, Joe deserved to discipline Michael that way. I think that's what he knew and that's how he was brought up. And I think that's also a sign of the times, just as spanking is something that's looked down upon now in today's society. Well, does that make my mom and dad a bad person because they spanked me? Yeah, I think that there's obviously Michael himself in a number of interviews spoke about his reaction to the way oh, yeah. that, that Joe used to discipline him. And, yeah. and But as you say, and Jermaine says this in his book as well, the way that Joe was disciplining his kids was not necessarily particularly different than anybody else in the neighborhood was disciplining their kids. And it was as you say, a sign of the times, you know, I mean, there's nobody on this call today, I would imagine, who would even dream of taking off their belt and using it to hit their child. But at the time, that was something that everybody did, you know, we look back at it now and say, that's terrible. I suppose the difference is, you know, maybe other people would be taking off their belt to hit their kid because they have, you know, smashed a window or something as opposed to misperformed a dance step. Yeah. You know, I think as regards, is it bad journalism? It's difficult to know what the dynamics are behind the scenes with what's going on in this show and how much editorial control Lynn Nottage actually had. Certainly I'm with Jamin in that I believe that the moment Lynn Nottage made the comment she did in 2019, she should have been sacked on the spot. And I know that when questioned about it at the estate gathering thing that they do in Vegas every year, this year, somebody from the estate claimed that Lynn Nottage had been misquoted. That's ludicrous. In my opinion, that's completely ludicrous. I don't believe she was misquoted. The guy that conducted the interview, his name is Baz Bamagboy. He's a legendary theater journalist both west end in london and broadway and it's just inconceivable to me that he made up those quotes and i don't believe that lynn nottage herself actually claimed that she had been misquoted as i said earlier in the show there is a definite trend with products and projects which are helmed by the estate in that they do tend to denigrate the family Not even always in projects, uh, as in things that have been released. But, you know, when you look at the AEG trial, for example, the estate siding with AEG rather than its own beneficiaries. And then when you look at the tribute concert in Cardiff back in, I think, 2011 with the estate essentially trying to torpedo it and issuing statements, discouraging fans from attending it. You can go back to all kinds of incidents which have happened. I believe at one point the estate put out some kind of statement when the family was questioning the validity of the will. I think that the estate issued some kind of statement saying that 
Michael's family were conspiracy theorists who were bitter because they'd been left out of his will. And you can fast forward to the bad documentary, the bad 25 documentary, where for literally no reason at all, and it bears no relation to anything which precedes it or anything which follows it in the whole documentary, there's just some guy telling a story, a really horrible story about how Michael was really excited one day because all his family were coming to visit him. And then the next day he went, oh, Michael, how was it with all your brothers last night? And Michael was all upset and said, oh, they didn't show up. They ditched me or something. And it's like, what on earth is the relevance, whether that story is true or not? And I sincerely doubt that that is true. But what is the relevance of that story to anything in the bad documentary? It just seems to be crowbarred into that documentary as an attack on the family. So anyway, there's, there is a long trend of the estate not being very complimentary towards the family and seeming to go out of their way to attack and malign the family. So you do wonder to what extent is this Lynn Nottage or to what extent is this the estate? How much creative control did Lynn Nottage have? Because I have a feeling that after the Leaving Neverland TV show came out, there was some statement somewhere from Lynn Nottage and or the choreographer who also endorsed the documentary that this show was going to address the controversy and was going to address the allegations. Of course, that appears not to be the case based on the reviews that have come out. So you know, how much creative... I think the estate is savvy enough not to have given them creative control. And so you do have to wonder, where is this coming from? These attacks on the family. What is the true motive and the true origin? I say all this, obviously, with an appendix that says, by the way, I've not been to see the musical. I'm just basing this, as, as we all are, on the reviews that are coming out from people who have seen the musical. It's definitely concerning that that it appears to be attacking the family, but it is in no way surprising. One of the other things I noted from Bobby's review he mentioned is that there wasn't much in the way of female representation. Uh, he said that there wasn't anything with Diana Ross or Elizabeth Taylor, but also of Janet and Latoya. What's what's your take on that? Well, I think, yeah, I think the, ex- the only female representation that I read, read about was Catherine being in it. And I'm very curious about how the musical portrays Catherine because obviously Michael had nothing but admiration and love for his mother. I did read a little tidbit somewhere that she kind of, in the in the show, comes across as kind of like a complicit bystander to Joe's abuse. And I feel a bit uncomfortable about that because Catherine's with us and this is, this is a, a an absolute matriarch and brilliant individual who Michael adored. And I just I just have real ethical concerns about people that are completely disconnected from the family, painting them and portraying them in a certain way, assumingly not having spoken to them. That's the bit that concerns me. Like I would like to think that the state should be engaging with Jackson family members, interviewing them, getting their perspectives, weaving that into projects and narratives. But yeah, I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable that the people in the family are being shown a different way. So yeah, on your question about female representation, I don't know, but I do I do have um some reservations about how how Catherine may have been portrayed in it. 
Well, you know, Mrs. Jackson is um, a very, very devout Jehovah's Witness and and always has been, and within the confines of Jehovah's Witness faith would have been precluded by her faith from actually questioning or challenging or defying her husband. And I remember being at an event once with John Landis, the director of Thriller and Black or White, and he was talking about that, and he was talking about how Joseph was essentially able to tread all over Catherine if he wanted to because of her completely devout faith. So it would be interesting to know whether that is in any way addressed in the musical or whether, because you use the word complicit, which that, that would be very alarming if she is, if she is in fact portrayed as being in any way complicit. That, that is what I have read from one, yeah, one, one fan who saw it. Taj, what are your thoughts on that? Look, my family was never perfect. I've never said that they were perfect. We're just a family in general, but being painted with broad strokes and kind of repeating what decade old um, media kind of words of what my family is or what Joe is or Catherine is, it's it's not only alarming, it's just I, I wish that people would dive in deeper in that way or ask us. Because uh, if you ask anyone in the family about these things, you get a, a completely different viewpoint in that way. And so, yeah, I mean, with my grandma in general, I, th- I the only thing I think about her in, in general, I think she's one of the strongest people I know. Just what she's had to endure in her life from two different trials, you know, the one the two thousand five trial to the basically the AG trial. She's gone through a lot and she's she's always shown strength and love at the same time in that. So I've nothing but love and respect for my grandma. And I think that is what I've seen in all the years of my life of not only knowing her, but being next to her and watching her. And so that's the way she should be portrayed in my eyes. Just so we're not making assumptions to your knowledge, was anybody in the family consulted or interviewed as part of the process of putting this thing together? To my knowledge, no, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. But I don't, not for the Broadway, I don't think anyone was consulted for the Broadway play. Okay. Well, Prince attended the the first night. I'd be be really, really interested to know what, what Prince thinks about it. I don't know if he's spoken publicly about it. Yeah. I would be too. Yeah. I'm in that way. Cause I, one, one thing that I love about Prince and, and just as, you know, besides the fine man that he's become, he's very protective of the family, the entire family. And so something that looks bad on the family or something that's not true about the family, it irks him and it bothers him. So that maybe that might be one of the reasons you haven't heard something from Prince because maybe he also felt that way about the way the family was portrayed. I wanted to add just one last thought because it hasn't come up yet. And I haven't seen the play either, of course, but it's what especially I think bothers me is to hear about the use of the song money, for example, with Joe beating Michael. And for me, you know, it's almost, it's kind of one thing to, you know, portray the family members in this problematic way. And that is all upsetting, but then to also use Michael's, own music in a way that completely 
reframes or redefines the whole narrative. And to use a song like that, which most certainly was not about his family, but was about, you know, the media treatment and the allegations and everyone like going after him and to just turn his own words on their head uh, is to me just really particularly alarming. And also kind of in terms of how, you know, future generations who are maybe still just discovering Michael's music might think about his own creative output and the meaning of it um, in the context of a show like this is pretty disconcerting and pretty alarming too that the estate would let something like that happen as well. So I don't know. Again, I haven't seen it. I've and a lot of fans who have gone to see it seem to only have really positive things to say. So who really knows, but I've heard several people mention the use of the song money. And I don't know, I just, it baffles me that that could actually be happening in this show. Yeah. 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 There's a number of fans, you're right, Elise, that there are a number of fans going that are having positive takes on it. There are also a number of fans who are choosing not to go and taking a principled stance against it because of Lynn Nottage, a friend of the show, Pez Jax from MJ Vibe. DM'd me the other day and said that he w- he went to New York and he he went to the merch store associated with the the um the musical, but he chose not to go to the play because of it. Just on the subject, to also of songs being decontextualized or misinterpreted, and also on the subject of bad journalism, as Carter raised earlier, just a funny thing that happened. I forget which outlet it was for, but there was a guy that wrote a review of the show after attending one of the previews and wrote in his review that for some reason the writers of the show had filled it with songs that had nothing to do with Michael Jackson and he couldn't work out. He was speculating that these were all other artists' songs which were perhaps owned by Michael Jackson's estate and they'd crowbarred them in for financial reasons or something and it turned out that most of the songs he was talking about actually were michael jackson songs he didn't know what he was talking about it was just some guy that essentially his knowledge of michael jackson was limited to thriller or something (laughs) i just thought that was quite funny i think money was one of the songs he was talking about it was like why why is this song money that's got nothing to do with michael jackson in the michael jackson musical (laughs) (laughs) yeah Okay, we're now going to cut to a review by listener Andrew Badami, who recently got to see the musical. Let's give it a listen. Hi, I'm Andrew Badami. I recently went to see MJ the Musical, and I wanted to share my thoughts for you guys. Uh, Unfortunately, when I saw the show, it was just after their COVID break they had, and the show wasn't as polished as it should be, as well as Miles Frost halfway through the show had a switch with a different MJ. I don't know why, but it happened. As well as the mics cut out towards the end of the show and they had to take a 10 minute intermission to fix it. So that really dampened the experience of watching the show. So I just wanna share my thoughts on the show. So I'll start with the pros. One pro for me was the young, young Michael Jackson. Really fantastic, the kid's 13 years old, sounded great, danced great and really was a great addition to the show. Another positive of the show was the set design. Uh, all the sets really were great, and they had lots of sets for the show. Uh, also during the show, they had some good dialogue that was subtle, uh, and I feel like it was important to Michael's life. Like they talked about, they had a scene where Joe bullied Michael about his face and his nose, and I thought that was important. As well, they showed important aspects of Michael's life that really shaped him who he is. 
Uh, they showed the Pepsi commercial, his hair getting burned. They also f- talked about Michael leaving the Jacksons at the, at the end of the Victory Tour. I thought that was an important part. Another positive to the show was Katherine Jackson. She had a great voice, and it was a really strong woman character for the show. As well, I want to talk about the costuming for the younger Michaels and the Jackson 5 great costuming for them. As it got to like the older Michaels, it was okay. For the cons, I talked about Miles Frost having to switch with a different MJ and the mic's cutting out. But other thing I want to talk about was they showed Joe Jackson cheating twice or like groping women. I don't know why they did that. I don't think that was important to the show. And I just think it once again put the, the Jackson family in a bad light. Another thing is they did portray the family in a fair light but they did make them seem a little greedy uh, especially during the victory tour they were singing money while michael uh was signing for the victory tour another con i found was the actor who played joe jackson also played the director for the dangerous tour and that became really confusing because they're two big roles and he would switch while like mid on stage without any like costume change just a voice change he did and it became a little confusing a time to time. Now I just want to talk about my overall thoughts on the show. I think the story wasn't too great. I think there was too many stories that were trying to make a bigger story. It was no like central theme. They talked about Michael's addiction to pain medications. They talked about Michael going to debt, especially with how he kept pushing to make the danger store bigger and bigger. And they talked about flashbacks with how his dad treated him and how his family treated him to, that shaped Michael to who he is. And these are all great stories, but there was no central theme to the story, nothing that was like driving the story that made me wanted to keep going. Another thing I want to talk about is the use of music to tell the story and not what the actual meaning of the song was. To fans, that's definitely bothersome, but to regular people, it actually helped tell the story. For example, Barry Gordy sung You Can't Win to Michael after he said he wants to leave Motown and make his own band with the Jacksons, as well as Quincy Jones sung Keep the Faith to Michael after Off the Wall didn't win the Grammys. So the use of music was more used to tell the story and not the actual meaning. And keep in mind that this was not a documentary. This was a musical, so they were using the music in a way as a form of storytelling. The last thing I want to talk about is, as an MJ fan, it upsets me to say that the show wasn't as good as I hoped it would be, but I would still suggest seeing it if you could because the show itself was still good. The actors who played the MJs were really good. Their dancing, their voices, their singing, and even their use of stage essence was very similar to Michael, and they really put in the effort to make it look fantastic. As well, the music was great. It was fun and energetic. But overall, the show was good, not great, but it was still a fun watch. So overall, I would rate the show anywhere between a 6 and 7 out of 10. Thank you. That is awesome. Thank you so much for sending that in, Andrew. Andrew's been a Michael Jackson fan for 10 years and a listener of the MJ cast for three years, and we really appreciate his contribution there. Very interesting thoughts. Some of those echoed sort of what our concerns have been. Others a little bit different. Listeners, if you're going to see the musical, please ensure that you continue to reach out to us on social media, letting us know about what you thought of the show. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing with the musical. I honestly want it to do well. I really do. But I also want it to be somewhat accurate. And I don't want my family to be betrayed as boogeyman or, you know, in that way. I want them to be honestly portrayed 
And so I haven't seen it in, in that way, but I'm always rooting for MJ projects to do well just because I know the narrative if it doesn't do well. And it doesn't, it's not like, oh, fans boycotted it. They'll say Michael Jackson's not relevant or they'll bring up Leaving Neverland saying that, oh, it's the damages that has been done from that cartoon show or whatever, you know, I don't even want to call it a documentary, but whatever it is, it's, I think that that's the, that's the thing, but I do respect everyone's opinion on what you want to do in that way. If, um, but me personally, I always look at every project that fails that has Michael Jackson's name on it. The media always spins it as if it's a lack of Michael Jackson interest or a lack of this or it's it's never like oh this is it failed because people were upset about this or or didn't like this part about it they just spin it to michael jackson failed i agree with you it's tough to know as a fan sometimes exactly because it's of very that tough. yeah what do you yeah. what do you do and how is that going to be interpreted yeah. from a mainstream audience it seems like there's no no real way to win there yeah, I mean, if if the Broadway play flops, which it's not going to because it's doing tremendously, you know, well, the the the, the hype and and the words about it and the fans that have seen it are very excited about it. But if let's say heaven forbid it flopped, that would be the news. The news would be Michael Jackson Broadway play flops, no interest, you know, and then they would start they would kind of shoehorn leaving Neverland in and every other allegation, you know, false allegation. And at the same time, just to fatten up that article. I mean, that's, I just, that's, that's their game plan. That's kind of what they always do. The, yeah. the irony is with the, the idiots that say the crap, like, like all of that. And, and Michael's numbers on streaming platforms, which we'll get to later on, are probably as big as they've ever been, if not bigger. So the irony of them saying all of that negative crap and, that that's not reflected in the facts. Oh, it's well, yeah, and that's the well, that's the irony of everything is that the facts always go against what they say, but they they're the ones holding the microphones, and that's always been the hardest thing about the media is that as much as we've had facts on our side of Michael's streaming numbers are up or Michael's this is off the charts or he just broke this record, it doesn't matter. They can just stream um, line what they want into that media narrative. I mean, look how much they ignored the train station thing. Yeah. It's like, but that's not to say that there's a lot of people that are waking up to that. And there's been a lot of people that have learned the truth from just other mediums and other ways. So I think it's something that we just have to be cautious of that. There's kind of two ways of looking at it. there's the fans and there's people that are invested that kind of see the numbers and all that stuff. But then there's other people that just, literally listen to what the media tells them. Yep, I could not agree more, Taj. Well, that brings us out of the news, guys. Thank you for all of your thoughts. I guess we'll jump into our main discussion topics now. Our first one really is just the year that was. I mean, 2021, what a crazy year it has been, both uh, at the MJ cast and also personally for us and, you know, just in the world in general with COVID still not being a gone like i think we were talking about in the last christmas special our hopes that the world would be back to normal by now like almost was i was just sitting here thinking as you were saying that i'm sure i was having like a deja vu moment was i on a, a previous christmas episode with taj and jamin where we were talking about covid it was you q and taj on the last one Oh, okay. Yeah, I do kind of vaguely remember that. And, <laughs> and it does not feel like it was a year ago. 
that feels like it was like maybe six months ago or something. I guess the thing with COVID is that we're all in a source of a suspended animation and time stops passing in the usual way because all the things that you would usually be doing with your time, you're not doing, and thus it feels like time is not passing. So in an average year, I would probably go to the cinema like 40 times and go to the theatre probably 10 times and do all this stuff, go on a trip somewhere probably to visit Taj or something. But it's just nothing's happening. We're just still here in the same room, working from home, going on the daily walk. And there was a period where things got slightly back to normal. Back in August, it seems insane now, back in August I was at a Jackson's concert in the front row, surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. And now here we are waiting to hear whether we're going to be locked down again. So it's kind of depressing. I don't even really remember what happened this year or what happened last year. I'm kind of stuck in a <laughs> in a time warp now. You're asking me about 2021. I'm like, what did happen in 2021? Did anything happen in 2021 apart from going to a Jackson's concert? I don't know. We had some cool stuff happen personally. Like I talked about having babies before with, with, with you know, Josie and Bryn and, and I, I guess – Carter, you've come on board as a, you know, an editor at the show. And I really wanted to say thank you so much for everything you've done here as well. Like, thank you. You've, you've really changed the game up at the MJ cast, like in terms of allowing me to focus on some show content and, you know, have a little bit of time back. So you coming on board as an editor has just been an incredible, incredible development for us. And we're very, very appreciative of all the amazing work you've done. And you've done such a brilliant job. So thank you. Yes, thank you. And also a brilliant addition to the group chat. Oh, well. Yes. <laughs> Two bricks. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's, it's very kind of you and, and very moving. Yeah, what a, what a crazy year it's been, like I say, having babies and yeah. <laughs> One thing I don't like about the year is I'm learning the Greek alphabet through different variants of COVID, and I don't like that. I wish I'd learned it a different way. <laughs> I've obviously been slacking because I've not been learning the Greek alphabet. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope that we don't learn any more characters. But, uh, no, overall, it's it's been a pleasure to to become part of the team. I've been listening for a few years now, like I say, and, yeah, I, I guess I messaged you at the right time when you were, were looking for an extra pair of hands. So thank you for having me. Yeah. That's not a worry at all. It's absolutely our pleasure. And in terms of the Michael Jackson world, I mean, 2021 has been kind of a, I don't know, I guess a bit of a, I mean, we've got the musical now, but, you know, it's been another year of kind of fans wondering <laughs> what's going on in terms of products. Well, hang on, Jamin, because you're forgetting the the big thing that happened, which was about 12 people in Las Vegas got to watch 10 minutes of footage from a history concert, (laughs) which was a huge, huge success for the estate, I think. (laughs) Oh, God. And and they released a couple more T-shirts. I mean, good on them. God bless them. Was it this year or last year that we got the bin bag (laughs) T-shirt? Was that last year or this year? Still on the website. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So it was probably it came out last year and it's still not been delivered. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, Invincible 20 rolled on by and nothing for that stuff. But anyway. And the history thing apparently didn't happen because of COVID. It's like, what what on earth does that have to do with anything? I think that's what the handful of assembled fans in Vegas 
for the sort of weird Steve Jobs style estate con thing that they do where all the, the people that run the estate get up on a stage somewhere and lap up applause and play history footage for nobody. But they said something about there was supposed to be this, this history tour footage was supposed to be in a history documentary, but we didn't make it because of COVID. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, you could have done something though. I mean, you don't what in a streaming world, how difficult would it have been to take a pre-existing footage of a concert and release it? Even if you did it on YouTube Oh, hang on. It was Ghosts this year? I think it was late last year, but it's, no, I think it's still on the year. website. But hang on a <laughs> was second. that last year as well? Oh, my God. Charlie, did you... Well, listen, I'm no, I'm not saying that they should have yeah, done it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm was that you really just suggesting they, no, 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 they should. Out? No, the history, the history tour footage should be, I'm on record many times as saying it should be burned and the ashes should be encased in concrete, and the concrete <laughs> should be dropped off of a frigate in the middle of the ocean. Oh, my God. But what I'm saying is the excuse that they gave for having not done it is like the most piss-weak excuse I've ever heard <laughs> because it's so easy to take something that already exists and put it on YouTube or something. I mean, it's so, how what a weak excuse. They're not, they, wouldn't, they didn't have to make anything. Okay. Yeah. They already have the footage. So... It, you know, uh, no, no, they absolutely should not release the history tour. No, that's probably the one success so far of the estate is that they've not. Oh, man, I've never heard you backpedal so much. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not backpedaling. My point remains the same. My point was the excuse was bad. I, I at no point was advocating the release of history tour footage. <laughs> Taj, can you tell that uh, history's not uh, one of Charlie's favorite tours? Yes. I, I could tell, and I didn't know that already. <laughs> yeah. So, Tash, did you join Michael on any of the history tour? Because that, that was around about the time that 3T would have been active, correct? Yeah, we did for a couple of them. We were there in one of the shows in France, one of the shows in uh, Holland. Now, it was crazy because we were obviously juggling our career as well, but anytime we could see our uncle and we were in the same country, we made a point to see each other or go to his show. But it was just like, it was a really chaotic time in a good way, but it was also a fun time. I remember going down the streets of, of Paris with my uncle. I don't think he was in disguise, but I think he was very much in a big coat and, and just hiding in general. But we were able, it wasn't far. We didn't go far up the street, but we actually did able to walk for a good 10 seconds or, or 15 seconds and then get back in the car. Wow. So. That was the extent of that. How many times would you say you saw your uncle perform live? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. That's a good question because you have to remember as kids, we were there for the Triumph Tour and then the Victory Tour. We were there. So seeing him with the Jacksons, we were there a lot of times watching that. Like I think they performed seven nights at the Forum or whatever, broke a record or whatever it was. So we were there every night for that. And then um, same thing with Dodger Stadium. We were there every night for that when it came to the Victory Tour. So I've seen him perform a lot, obviously the Dangerous Tour and then the History Tour. It's one of the biggest honors I have, and it's one of those pinch me. I can't believe I'm that lucky to be the person watching this because when it comes to the tours, we were in a unique position that we were usually watching it from backstage. So we were seeing the sea of crowds 
and the impact that he had as he sung. And then we would see him after, directly after the show. And, and it's like, now all these people have watched him and we get to hang out with him. And it was just like, how, how is that possible? How out of the billions of people in the world, how, how is it now we're going to go back to the hotel and watch Three Stooges or, or have water balloon fights? Or, it's just like, oh, that's just amazing. That's why I always say I feel so blessed in a way with all the nonsense that the media and other people have tried to throw at us. I still feel so blessed because I was that lucky kid that was able to do that. And how was he when he came straight off stage? Usually he was exhausted. I mean, if you want to talk about a, a man that left everything on stage, he was usually drenched in sweat and exhausted. But then the adrenaline coming back to the hotel kept him up at night. So he couldn't he couldn't just go straight to sleep. You would think being exhausted, you go straight to sleep. He would stay up and stay up. So we made it a point to just, you know, entertain him while that was happening, whether watching Three Stooges or, as I said before, do prank calls or a <laughs> bunch of – I mean, there's always – we had a bunch of ways to have fun. It was just amazing, and it was just – you just felt so lucky. Like, I'm so blessed to be here and watch this master at work. I mean, there's nothing like seeing, whether it's Billie Jean or Man in the Mirror or Ursong, seeing that from behind the scenes and the stage and seeing him sing out to the crowd – from a different angle that everyone else gets to see. Did he ever, straight after concerts, did he ever talk about how the show went? Was there ever dialogue around, oh, that was great that night, or that could have been better, or that kind of thing? The hardest thing for him, he was such a perfectionist, so he was never happy. And I shouldn't say never happy in general, just never happy with his performances. He always wanted to do more, and he always wanted to give the audience more. He felt like he, if he didn't give them 130%, or 140 or 50 percent, then he was cheating them out of an experience. So it was just it was really hard on him because as he became more of a perfectionist, he started, um, you know, not singing as much live and all that stuff because he felt like he had to give them a perfect image of him and a perfect performance of him and and a perfect Billie Jean dance routine and this and that. And as the songs got bigger and bigger and the concerts got longer and longer, it became hard in that way. I would say he was also more strict on himself as the years went by in general, where certain notes, if he missed the note or whatever, probably 20 years ago or you know, with his brothers, he wasn't sweating as much as him on this tour and kind of going off of that note and being like, you know, being himself up in that way. Did you realize by the way, that by the time you were joining him on these concert dates in Europe in 97, you were actually outselling Michael. And that is the year that Michael released blood on the dance floor, by the way, oh. it was a huge hit record, but in Europe, the biggest selling artist in Europe in 97 was the Spice Girls. And the second biggest selling artist in Europe in 1997 was 3T. Did you know that? No, I did not. It's amazing because I always downplay 3T just because it's hard for me to get compliments about what we did. But I could tell you it was something my uncle was extremely proud of us for. And we wouldn't have been there without him. He was a master and he kind of molded us into what 3T became, like everything from you guys, 
you know, can we wear PJs? Yeah, why not? Why not? You know, we thought he was going to say no because he's his his outfits are so fancy and so shiny and all that <laughs> stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Wear what you're wearing right now, you know, because we were wearing PJs when we were rehearsing. So he knew that not to make us what he wanted us to be, but what we already were, but just put a Jackson spin to it. And just He always knew that we were going to have a lot of scrutiny as well. So he wanted to make sure we weren't, I shouldn't say an embarrassment because we'd never do that, but just where we could stand up and be like, okay, we deserve to be here. Look, as great as we were doing and as many shows as we sold out in countries and all that stuff, he was playing stadiums. That was a big reminder of like, we're playing arenas and he's playing stadiums. So it's like, I never felt like we had made it. I always felt like until we start playing stadiums, we haven't made anything yet. We're still at a level that we need to get bigger. Well, what a a group of teachers you guys must have had, obviously with not just Michael, but all of your uncles. Can I just ask, you mentioned going on the, the, some of the live shows when the brothers were still performing together. What is your first memory that your dad and your uncles were a bit of a big deal? The interesting thing, obviously, I was on the stage, usually like sitting on a chair off to the side where people couldn't see me and my brothers, but we were usually on stage with them. So we were watching Masters at Work wow. and seeing the brothers – not even just the harmony of it, just them being brothers and being such an energy. And then it was probably the backstage stuff, seeing everyone come backstage and seeing the Magic Johnsons of the world or the Lakers, the people we'd see on TV, and they're there and they're like little kids. They're all excited. And I mean, Magic, I think, went to every show at the Forum and he's always been a family friend. It was so amazing to see all these big names because the forum is in LA. It had a a lot of Hollywood people there. And so that's when I was starting to realize, okay, people want to see them and people are hanging out with them. So they're a big deal. But on stage, I knew they were a big deal because I saw the audience, I saw the screaming, and it was just, it's mesmerizing, which is the reason why, you know, me and my brothers wanted to be 3T and and do 3T. We We would bring home mops and brooms and mimic them from the Jackson Live album. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> well, you know who else was at those forum shows was um, Prince. Oh, wow. In 2011, the forum, it was at risk mm-hmm. of being lost. I don't know whether it got saved in the end or not, but he went to the forum and played a residency there and charged something insanely cheap, like $25 a ticket or something and gave all the money away to try to save the forum. While he was on stage, he gave a speech one night, and he said that one of his formative experiences, one of the things that made him want so much to be a performer, was that he saw the Jacksons performing live at the forum. That's amazing. And, I mean, I can understand why. I mean, there was something about that triumph tour and that triumph performance and the Jackson Live album that just, for me, I love every bit of it. I'm wondering, did they ever play the forum before Triumph? Because actually, that seems like it might have been too late for it to have been such an inspiration for Prince. They played it a lot. There's a Jackson 5 19, I think it's 73, live at the forum. I think that's what I'm talking about, not Triumph. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think he no. was talking about... Yeah, the, those earlier shows. Yeah. It could be. I don't know if they did for the Destiny tour as well, but I I definitely know for the Jackson 5, they were at the form as well. Taj, you mentioned seeing Michael and your uncles and your dad performing. 
Did you spend much time with Janet on any of her tours or any of her live shows as well? And what influences she had on on 3T? Oh, yeah, definitely. I was dating one of Janet's dancers at the time of the Janet album. So I was there a lot. I mean, I I went on tour (laughs) with them. It was incredible because it was seeing two masters from two different point of views. Well, actually three, because if you include the Jacksons, I got to see that concert behind the scenes, but I was a little younger, so I didn't appreciate it that much. But then I got to see Michael Jackson behind the scenes and how concerts are ran and all that stuff. And then with Janet, it was amazing because I really got to see how the touring and all that came about. And, you know, I knew the band members and everything like that, became friends with them. And so it was interesting. It was kind of like Janet really had a family atmosphere when it came to touring. It was different than Michael, who was, it was a bunch of excellent people at the top of their game. Mm. He didn't have a family aspect with them. Maybe they had it with each other, but he didn't have it with them. I mean, certain members became his family in the same with like Sugarfoot and stuff like that. But it was more of a professional vibe. When we did 3T later on, we took a page more from Janet's point of view and, and made it more of a family in our aspect because that was the kind of scary thing about our tour was that we were the boss of our tour. Like our record company didn't want us to tour. And so we took our advance in our merchandise money and we funded our tour from that. So we didn't get a cent from the record company to tour. So we were funding it ourselves. Every concert, every country was funding the next country, (laughs) if that makes sense. And luckily we sold out everywhere, but that could have been disastrous. But we also were our own bosses. So we were signing checks. We had the power of firing people, which we never did, but we kept it a a fun environment because we were like, this should be great for everyone. We're excited. We want everyone to be excited. And so one of the other things that we did, which I'm very proud of us of doing, which we just did, we didn't even think about it, was we ate with the crew. We ate with everyone. We, it wasn't like there was a hierarchy of like, oh, no, we're stars. We eat separately. We ate with the same people that were the ones responsible for building the, the stage in that way. And so it, it kind of felt like a team in that way. And I, I, I'm very proud of that. And I would, I would always want to do anything I do in that way. Mm. Taj, we are still waiting on this Brotherhood high-definition home video release we've talked about a couple of times now. <laughs> I bring it up every time we talk. What's going on? Well, it's funny you should say that because as I was moving in general, I've had some conversations with my brothers because I'm sitting looking at tapes of beta cam SP. They're still standard definition, but they can be made into high definition pretty easily with the quality. And I'm looking at shows from Amsterdam, shows from Paris, shows from London. We have about eight shows taped. I think that's in the cards eventually for us because they're just as I told my brothers and they told me they're just sitting there like they're not doing anything in that way and so it's like they're just going from one place that I moved to the other place I moved so and I've I got money sitting in my bank account just sitting there as well ready to go so let's go <laughs> yeah there's I mean there's yeah just putting it out there as well that the Sydney Opera House is a great place if you want to do a reunion and film it in 8k so there's that <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's that's a great thing, too. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, too. The one album that we never got to release, our follow-up to Brotherhood, that our uncle was instrumental in producing with us, that never got released because of the whole thing with Michael and Sony. That is probably going to see the light of day sooner than later because that's something Ooh. that we we 
it's as as we said it's we're it's sitting there we're just we're not doing anything with it now the hard thing has been we just want to throw it out there with no fanfare or no excitement because this is like something that is very dear to us and something that my uncle knew every song he worked on all the songs with us in terms of like giving us notes and pointers and he heard every song on that album and he kind of was like okay you need more of this or or that's incredible that's a great song this should be your first single so there's a lot of things that he helped us with on this album so there's a sentimental meaning to this album so we just didn't want to just toss it out on the internet Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's just sitting there as well so there's that fine line of what do we do with it so we're going to try and figure out something special in that way too because luckily the songs don't sound dated because they're live instruments and we kind of went for that classic feel anyway so they it sounds very current which is weird but um yeah we're very proud of it i it's it's an album that i think is is easily our best album, but it's not been released yet. You, you have got me more excited than I can put into words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, I'm, ex- I'm still excited every time I hear it. I'm like, this has to come out. Taj, when I interviewed your brother, Tarrell, one of the biggest regrets I have of the MJ cast ever, and I have to fix this one day with him, but he was talking about a song and I didn't question him more about the song and I wish to this day that I did. But he mentioned a song that was created with Michael and the song he named was called I Love You. Mm. And in subsequent research, when you look at the notes that Michael left behind from the final house that he lived in, there's notes which list the songs that he wanted to complete for his future album. And one of the song titles on there is I Love You. And so... I wanted to ask you whether you have any memories of that song because from what I've heard, you may have worked on it with him or had heard it or anything like that. Um, I have a lot of memories of that song. My uncle constantly tried to steal that song from 3T. <laughs> he loved that <laughs> song. He made it known. He's like, like Terrell wrote an incredible song and my uncle made it known that he loved the song. So it, I didn't know that story about it being written on his wall or whatever it was you just said. But for me, that makes sense because it was one of those songs he wanted to record and um, he at least wanted to sing on it in, in that way. So it makes complete sense. It's a beautiful song and it would have been great for Michael to have sung on it, but it just never happened. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I love you was a song that was supposed to be on that album that I had just said never got released, but because my uncle heard every song that we had and he would hear them in certain stages too. But I love you was a song that he definitely either wanted to record with us or he wanted to record on his own in that way. And there's another one that Terrell wrote called I'm so alone that he was in love with as well. And he actually in the Sony vault somewhere, there has to be a recording of Michael's vocals on the backgrounds because it might have been in his own session because we came over to record one to record it. It might have been while he was doing something and it could be on one of those reels, but there definitely is a recording of Michael singing I'm So Alone with us, the backgrounds. Wow. And that's how I know how loud he is when he sings the choruses because he was stomping and clapping during the recording of it. And we're like, 
what about the leakage and stuff like that? And he's like, he just didn't care. He was like, he was getting into it. It was, was amazing. But we don't have that. So that's something on Sony's side or someone would have to discover it. I don't even know what song to look for. Wow. I really need to hear that song one day. All right, guys, let's move on. Jeez, it's been a big year for the MJ cast as well with with season seven. Um, thinking back on the the episodes that we've done, and and boy, I'm so proud of um, so many of them. I, I really love having been able to speak to our fan friends like Ricky and and getting to know Sean and Christina really well. That was just awesome, and having them on episodes was great. Having Q back on some apps that was cool. I loved his episode with Bjorn. Casey Rain's episode where he dug into that Prince Estate versus MJ Estate thing was really cool. But I think when I'm, when I'm thinking about those special episodes, boy, I mean, if I had to choose one of the ones we did that was like a real highlight for me this year, I think, um, well, listen, because I wasn't on the Talitha Linehan one, but listening to her stories with you, Elise, that took me right into like her world. That was pretty, pretty crazy being able mm-hmm. to learn about the last few years of Michael's life. And you did a great job there. That was an intense episode. Yeah. We had to record it twice, didn't we? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. (laughs) There's a YouTube version and a podcast (laughs) version. (laughs) This year, the the episode that's probably making the biggest waves for us, maybe except for the roundtables we've just put out that are charting really, really well, that Carol Lemire episode, that one was special. We've spoken to Michael Jackson collaborators before, but I don't think we've ever really had the chance to speak to somebody who on an everyday basis, was so close to him uh, on a personal level and professional. And Charlie, just the way that you were able to ask her, you know, questions and, and you know, get that real information about what Michael had to deal with in his life, that was that was something. Well, it helped that uh, Taj had greased the wheels by taking me with him for dinner with Carol and also getting me stuck in an elevator with Carol Um, so, you know, Carol is a a brilliant person and we spoke to her so much that night. And so a lot of those stories, I came away from that night thinking, oh my God, these stories, outrageous that these stories are not in the public domain. And so when we were looking for that June 13th episode for this year, she was the first person that sprang to mind because she just is a a font of so much pertinent knowledge and experience. And I think the reason that that episode resonated so strongly, and in addition to her proximity to Michael and her being a very funny person and an engaging person, is the quite seismic nature of some of the stories that she told. Carol, for me, of course, was was a highlight also. Talitha's, that I thought was great, it made me buy her book. I think that book would be a difficult read for somebody who's not a Michael Mega fan, but the last maybe third of that book is, it almost reads like a thriller. I mean, it's just, is so shocking and sad. The story that she tells about Michael's final weeks and the fans' efforts to try to save his life and how they were thwarted by what sound like quite dark forces that's it was a real revelation that episode and then the other one that i absolutely absolutely loved was sean shackleford's first episode what was it called was it called my father was ready to go yeah is that is that what it was called 
Oh, glorious episode. A magnificent celebration of the Jackson 5 and Jackson's era. Such great stories about seeing them live at the real peak of their abilities. I don't know if Taj has heard that one, but Taj, if you haven't, you would absolutely love it. That's well worth listening to. No, I haven't, but I will. Definitely. Cool. And I mean, Carter, you've been editing all of these. So, I mean, thanks again for that. But what stood out to you is probably one of your ones that you look back on most fondly from this season. Oh, it's, to be brutally honest, it's difficult to pick a favorite. Obviously, Talitha's one was my first one to edit. There's some challenging ones. The the Carol LeMaire one was so special because of its content, but the audio was a massive challenge. I don't want to give away too many of the secrets, but the, the biggest challenge on that was that Carol and Charlie Thompson were on the same audio, but then we also had a, a solo audio of Charlie as well, and mixing and matching between those was a massive challenge. Yeah. Aileen Madala's special was pretty good as well. Also a few audio issues, but I think we got it sounding good. Christian James Hand and what he does with breaking down songs is pretty special as well. Now, I'm not biased at all, but I think this episode that we're recording right now is probably my favorite so far. Uh, it's my first yeah. first opportunity to speak to a member of the Jackson family on something other than email. Uh, Taj, it's been a pleasure having you and speaking to you. It's been Ah, oh, thank you. No, this is I, I love this podcast in, in oh. general. Um, so just you guys keep continued success. Keep doing what you're doing. I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast, and so I'm just happy that it's here and it's celebrating not only Michael but the family as well. So thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, just to I guess wrap it up. I this pat this whole season has been a lot of fun. And um, I really enjoyed doing some of these author interviews. I think that's become kind of my sweet spot as a host exploring those, you know, stories that (laughs) in books and kind of digging deeper there. The Talitha episode, absolutely. I think that, like you said, Charlie, that last like third of her book in particular is absolutely required reading for any fan and what for what was going on in those final days of Michael Jackson's life. The level of detail is and just the the things it really digs into and exposes that have not been talked about enough is pretty incredible. And it was a real honor to speak to her and also um, Talene, who was there for a lot of, of those moments as well. And then also I really enjoyed my chat with Q and Bjorn and having a really interesting and sort of different discussion about whether or not we should look at Michael Jackson as an icon within the queer community as well, and mm. um, the different sides of of that chat. Um, so that was that was kind of something like fresh, and you know, something we hadn't done a whole lot of on before on the podcast. So I enjoyed that too. And thank you again, Bjorn. He really put that idea together. So I'm looking forward this next season to um, digging into like with Sean. Sean Shackelford has been such a great addition this past season. So digging into more of his stories and the earlier. MJ and Jackson's and Jackson 5 stories, I think is going to be really exciting. And hopefully finding some of those guests who flaked out on us this year and getting them back for next season. Oh, <laughs> we could name them, but we still want them. So. <laughs> and again, thank you, Taj, just as always for being such an amazing advocate and also a friend of our show. It really does just mean the world to us. You're, you're very welcome. <laughs> and by the way, that, that episode with Bjorn and Q was fantastic. It was I forgot about that one, but it was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, oh. I was very honored to get to moderate that one. <laughs> that was the one we kept inviting you to be on, but you weren't getting our messages because of some chat problem. <laughs> oh, I'm oh, right. so annoyed about that because as I was listening it, to it, there were so many things where I was thinking, oh, man, I wish I could join in here. And then when I discovered that you had actually invited me on, but it 
disappeared into cyberspace, the invitation that was so gutting. But it was still, it was a brilliant episode. The other person, in addition to uh, Sean, who was a great addition this year, I thought, was um, Christina, was brilliant on the show. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. To echo that as well, that was brilliant. And uh, Elise, the first episode I edited was the Talitha episode. That was actually our first all-female episode, and I hope for many more of those. And I've said privately, but I'll say it here as well, Elise, you've got such a skill for being able to probe with the questions without sounding invasive. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear more of you doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Whereas me and Charlie, we're just invasive. We just go in. (laughs) 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 <laughs> take no prisoners sorry joe vogel i i admire that as well <laughs> and also to echo sean christina and q bjorn have all been great as well yeah for sure taj i just want to also ask you we were talking earlier about how our years had been and how things have have gone for us you personally with putting together your documentary and everything like that how's your 2021 been my 2021 has been great but also very frustrating Right. In terms of like, you know, I had another baby girl. And so that's been a new journey for me. And that's been amazing having two beautiful daughters that I love very much. But at the same time, in terms of this whole pandemic and in in general, it's like right when you feel like you're going to get ready to start up again. And it's like, okay, this is the time that we're going to be able to start up. It's like this always been the scare of like, oh, another wave is coming or now a new variant. And it's like, so that's been the frustrating thing. Now, behind the scenes, I've obviously been working a lot. And that's one of the things in terms of this move has allowed me to do is is start digitizing tapes that will definitely be used for the docuseries that I'm sure the fans would love to see as well. Um, I don't want to give too much away. It's it's exciting stuff in that way. And that's that's very recent. That's within probably the last, I would say, month, month and a half. But I think it's because I've been connecting more with people that have known Michael for 30, 40 years and stuff like that. And they have not only their incredible stories, but they have sometimes incredible footage or they have incredible things to share as well. So I'm really excited. But at the same time, it's been a frustrating journey seeing the, the fact that the media has been so clamp on, you would think it, the narrative would be like, oh, okay, well, we made a mistake, so let's try and undo that mistake. But instead, they're kind of doubling down on that lie of leaving Neverland or just ignoring it altogether. Yeah, well, that brings us really to our next main discussion topic, our last topic, which is when we see the media behaving in a certain way online, how to approach that. A really interesting thing happened within the last couple of weeks where a uh, quote-unquote journalist by the name of James Hall, who works for The Telegraph, tweeted out an article. And I've not read the article. I can't get to it. It's behind a paywall, but um, and I don't, I don't subscribe to The Telegraph. The article was to do with whether Michael Jackson is too big to cancel. And there was a couple of fan reactions that really – drew my attention in. The MJ Innocent team, you know, Shawnee and Annika, they called it out very publicly. They quoted it and they said, the real simple answer as to why Michael Jackson can't be cancelled as pondered in your article is because he's innocent. Do journalists not do any critical thinking anymore? Do they not do any research? And then there was another response by a different fan, Andy Healy of MJ 101, 
And he said in his tweet, I see many retweeting an article about MJ and cancellation. I was ready to respond, but then realized the journalist doesn't want both sides or he would have covered and investigated it. So I refused to be his publicist by giving it air. I guess I just wanted to pose to everyone here this question of what is the right thing to do? Is it important to stand up for Michael and call out this bullcrap? publicly or is it better to just completely ignore it and starve it or are both approaches okay what what's the answer here i can start since it's something that i've always um wrestled with that kind of question in general naturally i've done both I, uh, originally with when the lies and rumors came about with my uncle because he didn't want to address it i didn't address it and I was very quiet about it, but I think it's hard because we live in a different age and we live in an age where if you don't address something, people just think it's true. And so leaving Neverland really taught me. And it was one of the things where I'm like, I have to address this. I have to call it out because it's a lie. I've always been active on Twitter, but it was a different stance where I didn't care what anyone, whether it was family or the estate, had said. And luckily, they all were on the same page, and they wanted to do the same thing. But I was prepared to be defiant in that way because I was like, no, I, we've been down this road. And last time we turned the other cheek, Wade Robson didn't go away. You know, He found a bigger sucker to con, basically, in terms of – and I should say to con because I think that they're compliant in a lot of this as well. But – he just found some uh, some firepower and, and some money to, to back him and got James involved and, and same thing. So it's frustrating, but every tweet I see, and I see a lot of tweets, guys, I just want you to know that even some people at me, so like I can see it even more, but I see a lot anyway. I mean, I unfortunately wake up and look at Twitter, which is the dumbest thing to do because it can shape my day. But I'm also heavily invested in my uncle, uncle's legacy because it frustrates me when an innocent person is demonized. And it doesn't matter whether it's Michael Jackson or anyone else. It bothers me. And so what I've learned to do is kind of I pick my battles now. If it's someone, honestly, with three followers, I'm, I'm not going to waste my breath. But if it's someone with 50,000 or 100,000 or 5 million, yeah, I'll probably jump in there and say something. But I've been biting my tongue all year because it's been there's a lot of ignorance and you have to you kind of have to figure out what's the real ignorance like do they really not know or are they trying to be some like a journalist that's trying to bait the fans and get some views and either way if that journalist has enough following behind it it can still influence a lot of people that don't know and don't know the truth so it is good that people on those messages or under were kind of informing people about the truth because that's how people learn the truth. That's people read those comments. And so every time I see an ignorant statement and then I, under it, I see fans posting the truth or posting facts and, and stuff like that. It, it's, it's, it's so helpful to me in that way because someone will learn the truth from that. You've pretty much nailed it there, Taj, and similar point of view to what I've got, which is, I think fans in general have got to pick their battles. They've got to be selective about which ones they choose to argue with, if you like. I mean, if it's an account that's been created on Twitter purely 
for the one purpose of heaping shit on Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, starboard of oxygen. Don't even bother. Just report it and away you go. Exactly. If it's a so-called blue tick like this guy, James Hall, who is clickbaiting, you, you sort of have to think twice about it because you know that the reason he's writing an article like that is because he will get the ire of the Michael Jackson fans, which will give him the clicks, which will give him the numbers that he needs to call himself a success. But also for someone who's got a following like that, it's important to highlight, well, actually you're wrong and this is why. Now, if there's two topics that I hate the media for, is they're reporting on all things to do with Michael Jackson and aviation because it's the two topics they invariably just get wrong. And it's so frustrating. So I don't know how you've managed to deal with it with such dignity over the years, Taj, but you deserve a lot of credit for that. Well, thank you. I, I really try, when it comes to blue ticks, I really try and see it from their perspective to see, it, A, are they just ignorant? Like, And I mean ignorant in a good way. Like they just don't know the truth. They just don't know the facts. They were, they had decades of lies from the media. And, and so they're just misinformed. Fine, I can live with that. Now it's time to inform them. But if it's someone that's just a hater, as you said, or someone that's really just trying to really hurt his legacy and is invested in that and invested in that lie, that's a different story altogether. And that when you do have to know the difference and you do have to pick your battles because you can sit there arguing with someone that has five or six followers for two hours of your life, which you could have done a lot with in that, those two hours. So I've learned that as well in that I've picked my battles, but at the same time, I'm still as much of an advocate as I've always been on the truth. Yeah, I, I do think it's, well, I think picking battles, but also I think it's about each fan being honest with themselves about where their skill set is as well, if that <laughs> makes mm. sense. Because I find that when I've let myself get into social media arguments, I don't do well. Like I take it everything way too personally and I just like have a meltdown <laughs> um, <laughs> where I have found. And like, I mean, Taj, you deal with it so well. You stay very calm. I mean, Charlie Thompson, you, you know, you're so amazing at just like, just doing the facts and like never wavering, which I just, I, you know, I, I again, I take it everything way too personally. I kind of fall apart. But where I found like my kind of area where I, I can do it well is when I, do really pick my battles the right way. And I can actually have like a direct conversation with someone where even if it's on a smaller scale, like maybe I can actually change someone's mind in a real way. Interesting. And maybe I guess some people would say, you know, that is like a tiny little blip in the ocean and doesn't really matter, but it's the way I function best. And so when I do see people, some fans kind of, you know, just really like, going crazy on social media and doing the whatever the memes of Wade dancing like a chicken or whatever. I just, you know, don't know how helpful that really is. But um, if we can kind of each, I think, think about where we can actually contribute in a way that's meaningful, it can maybe have a bigger impact. That's my personal take on it. And that's an interesting take because I don't believe in small blimps at all. Like I, th I think in terms of anyone that learns the truth is someone that's important. I've said it in a tweet before. I'll sit there and I'll talk to someone for two hours mm -hmm. if they really want to know the truth. And it doesn't matter if they're blue tick or if they're just a regular person. It's the same to me because I want people to know the truth. But also saying that it is, it's frustrating. You do have to pick your battles and you have to know your strengths. And one of the things that I've seen is people get mad at my family. Like, why aren't you guys defending them more? Well, exactly what you just said, at least in terms of 
everyone knows their own strengths and everyone will, will react differently. I'm very level-headed and calm about it. So I've had family members come up to me and going, you're doing an amazing job. Keep doing what you're doing. We support you because they know that I can handle it different than they can handle it. Now, if you want someone that's more aggressive in a good way, then there you go. Here's Siggy. Siggy is definitely going to give you his peace of mind and he's not going to sugarcoat anything. He's the complete opposite of me in a good way. If you want to go down that route or if you're need, you need that route about it, Ziggy will tell you what he thinks and will not hide it. It's knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. That's a, a great point as well, Taj. Demeanor is huge as well. And if you can deal with something like that in a calm and rational way, you're going to come across as a hell of a lot more credible. There are some Michael Jackson fans out there who just get so angry with their defense. And then they'll do other really weird shit. I mean, I saw something months back where some guy decided to go to Tom Sneddon's grave and film himself dancing on top of it. You're like, that doesn't make you look credible. And that just gives ammunition to the people that are going to criticize Michael Jackson fans. Absolutely. You've got to do it in the right way. You have to do it in the right way. And you have to realize that the people that we're going after, we're going after people that want to know the truth. And the more we adhere or make people think we're just these loony fans, these crazy Michael Jackson fans, and we fit into that stereotype, the more we lose our arguments and the more that we fit into that media narrative. So yes, we have to be calm. We have to be rational and we have to win by the facts, which is what we have on our side. That's what I'd look at. If we didn't have facts on our side, then we could do all that other stuff to distract. And Hey, look over here because we don't want you to look at the facts. But the truth is, is that we want them to look at the facts. We want them to do the research because as as I've said exhaustively, Michael Jackson's one of the few people that the more you actually study the case or the cases or whatever it is, the more you go down that rabbit hole, the more innocent he is. And I think that's something. So we, it's, we welcome people coming and, and looking and being like, okay, yeah, go ahead, do the research, get the court transcripts, get everything, get what you can. Yeah. So I guess, so what we're saying here is when somebody tweets critically about Michael Jackson and they haven't done their research, what things we have to take into account are, well, first of all, do they even have a following? Are they people that only have a few followers? Is it even worth bringing attention to it? And then what we have to think about is where do our strengths lie? Are we able to lay the facts out clearly in a way that comes across credibly? I like those thoughts. I think that's great. Charlie Thompson, you're a journalist. What do you think about this? What should your everyday fan do if they see something online that really upsets them by a prominent account, what do you think? Well, I think firstly, we have to realize that there exists when it comes to this issue, two worlds and there's the real world. And then there's the world that national newspaper journalists or some of them live in the world that they inhabit And some of them are relics from a time when that industry had a lot more clout and a lot more power than it does now. And they seem not to realize that they don't have the power that they once had. So what you saw with Leaving Neverland when it came out was a media which was almost unanimously, almost 100% in favor of the TV show, promoting it repeating every allegation contained within it as fact, not scrutinizing or investigating or questioning or challenging 
anything contained within it, not performing the task of a journalist in almost any case at all, just eating it up and regurgitating it. Then what you saw was when it came out on TV, a public which absolutely was not on board with the narrative that the national papers were peddling. If you go back to when the the TV show came out, there were a number of media outlets which ran polls, you know, whether it be like Loose Women or whether it be newspapers or whether it be TV stations, radio stations, whatever. There were polls going on everywhere. Are you cancelling Michael Jackson? Do you believe the allegations, etc., etc.? Michael Jackson was winning every poll, every poll. I can't remember seeing one that he didn't win. So the public was not really buying it. And so what you were watching was a sort of an embarrassing muscle flexing exercise by a newspaper industry, which doesn't realize that it's increasingly irrelevant and was thinking that it had the power to destroy Michael Jackson, to cancel Michael Jackson. And it just failed spectacularly. And the public didn't buy into it. The viewing figures almost everywhere for the TV show were not very good. It sold well in the sense that they managed to sell it to every territory. It was very successful in that sense. But in terms of viewership, it was not really very successful. And in terms of reaction, action, reaction, nothing really happened. There were a couple, a handful of radio stations which took Michael Jackson's music off the air. Not many, and most of those which did have since put it back on. This year at the global concert thing for climate change, there was a big tribute to Michael Jackson aired all over the world with Billy Porter. So it's really, as a project, it has failed And now the media has egg on its face. And so now you're seeing all these kind of pathetic navel gazing stories about, oh, is Michael Jackson too big to cancel? It's like, no, the public are not saying Michael Jackson's a pedophile and we don't care. We just love Thriller. The public are saying we don't buy it. We don't buy even as it was airing, as I was told this story before on the podcast, as it was airing, I was not watching it. I was recording it, but I was not watching it. But I was watching Twitter. I was watching the hashtag on Twitter and opinion was so much more divided than I thought it was going to be. And the media coverage never reflected the public sentiment. The media coverage, it was insistent upon itself. It was insistent upon this is the narrative. Michael Jackson's definitely guilty. We're not questioning anything. We're not going to do any journalism at all. We're just going to parrot everything in the TV show, accept it as fact, promote it as fact, give it free advertising every single day, and then insist that it's destroyed Michael Jackson's reputation and that he's been cancelled. And none of it was true. None of what they were saying was happening or was going to happen ended up happening. It was really embarrassing. And Reed was furious. I mean, he was absolutely livid. You could see that he was livid in uh, as the interviews went on uh, beyond, far beyond when the t- TV show came out and was aired. You could see how angry he was that people weren't buying it, that Michael Jackson wasn't being cancelled. It didn't have the impact he thought it was going to have. The media were pissed off because it was embarrassing for them that they'd basically on a daily basis for about two months been promoting this thing for free in a very aggressive way, and it just had no impact whatsoever. So 
in that sense, I do kind of feel like it's irrelevant because the public just isn't buying it. When you look at the polls, when you look at the viewing figures, those who are on board with the idea of Michael Jackson's guilt, they are a minority. Taj used the phrase earlier. It was like the facts are on our side, but they're the ones with the microphones, right? So that remains the case. The the press, the media overwhelmingly is still just as anti-Michael Jackson as they were you know, 40 years ago when they couldn't bear the idea of a black guy being really successful and 30 years ago when they couldn't bear the idea of a black guy owning the Beatles and 20 years ago when they couldn't bear the idea of a black guy calling his son Prince. It's the same mentality. It's never gone away right up to today where they have a terrible problem with a black guy being accused of molesting kids. But don't mention David Bowie, who's been accused of raping one teenage girl after another. Don't mention that. We're not interested. Right. So it's the same mentality. And it's because it's an industry that's sort of stuck in a time warp and is not catching up to the times that we now live in. We have an audience which is more tech savvy than it's ever been and has more access to alternative information than it's ever had. In many ways, that's really, really bad because it means that when a coronavirus pandemic hits the world, lots of people have access to David Icke. And they can go online and say, oh, there isn't a pandemic and the vaccine is full of drugs that are going to give me cancer and Bill Gates is going to be spying on me in the shower or whatever the fuck they believe, right? So that's the downside. But the upside is when Leaving Neverland comes out, people go on Twitter and say, oh, what's this thing about Michael Jackson that's on TV? Oh, there's a link here on Twitter. It says it's going to take me to some court documents. Oh, this guy that's on TV right now His case was thrown out of court a few years ago because he was caught committing brazen perjury. I didn't know that. Why isn't that in the TV show? Right. So there are pros and cons to the world we now live in. And one of the pros was that even though this TV show was spectacularly unethical and did not in any way perform the task of journalism and was extremely biased and extremely manipulative in the information that it did present and the information that it didn't present, We live in a world where people were able to go online and find their own information. And the TV show did not really have the impact that everybody involved wanted it to have. But the media has continued in this kind of self-deluding way to write about it as though it did have that impact. So after the devastating impact on Michael Jackson's reputation of leaving Neverland, it's like, hang on a minute, his streams went up. Exactly. There was no no devastating impact. He literally became more profitable after the thing came out. In that sense, I kind of get annoyed with fans who keep flaming this thing up because it's almost like the only reason, the only motive for journalists to have to keep writing these kind of stories, as Charlie was saying, is because they know that the fans are going to get cheesed off. The fans are going to start retweeting it to each other all day for days. They're going to keep clicking on it, leaving comments, ranting about it, quote tweeting it, etc. So you're actually giving life to something which is kind of silly and petulant and irrelevant. And when you look at these tweets, quite often the journalists have tweeted these things like eight hours ago and had three retweets, and then a fan finds it, and all of a sudden it goes bananas, right? So it's it's counterproductive. In terms of what should fans be doing, I struggle with the idea that they should be 
targeting these journalists purely because I think it's really counterproductive. Because what happens is because of the way the fan community exists on the internet, as soon as one fan tweets that journalist, all the other fans that are following them can see that that's happened. They now start tweeting that journalist. All the fans that are following them see that that's happened and they start tweeting the journalist. So what you see is a, a journalist who's tweeted one article once and all of a sudden has 300 replies to their tweet. There is no planet on which that is helpful. It's just not helpful. All that that, all that, that journalist is going to feel is attacked, abused, threatened. You know, they're, they're not going to be receptive to that. Their phone is going to be blowing up. They're going to feel really harassed. They're not going to click on anything that you're sending them because if you've got 300 fans and one of them saying, read this article, one of them saying, watch this video, one of them saying, listen to this podcast, it's overwhelming. They're not going to do any of it. So I don't believe that it really has any positive impact whatsoever. And I think it actually makes the journalists even more aggressive and disdainful towards Michael Jackson and his fans. I think that they grow to hate Michael Jackson and his fans because their social media is just destroyed for weeks. So actually they see the fan community as this horrible, aggressive online thin skinned mob who you say one thing about Michael Jackson and then it's just weeks of abuse. So I don't believe it helps at all. And I kind of am on board with Andy Healy, which is an unusual thing for me to say in that, I do think that it is more effective to just ignore them because when you look at the interaction that they're getting on these articles, usually it's zero, it's nothing. They just get nothing, they get no traction because the public doesn't buy it. And it's actually the fans that blow them up, I think. When I go to an article, like a, a tweet that's been put out by a journalist, not only do I try to read the article, I, I couldn't this time because it was behind a paywall that I don't subscribe to, but. If um, I access that tweet, I also have a quick browse underneath of the general replies coming into it, not just about Michael Jackson, but about any topic, just to see what the general public opinion is on that topic. Now, if everybody was to follow that advice and we don't reply at all and just starve it, but then the article does have, for whatever reason, people that think Michael Jackson's guilty replying to it, isn't that a bad look then? to the public when you look at the replies to an article and they're all just ones that support guilt. Well, isn't that also a negative outcome? It possibly, possibly. It depends on how many people you think are going to be viewing that tweet, though, because I would argue that in the overwhelming majority of instances, these articles get no traction whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The fans blow them up and it's the fans that attract the detractors to then start commenting on them as well. Usually, they just don't do anything. And those detractors, as we know, they are actually an extremely small community of very obsessive Michael Jackson fanatics who, for some reason, have gone down a sort of a Mark Chapman type route with their obsession and have, as we know, because we know who some of them are, spent literally like 15 years of their life devoted to trolling Michael Jackson in life and in death on the internet. These are, it's a very small group and they don't really have any clout in part because they're constantly getting banned from Twitter for their abusive 
often racist, often actually pro-pedophile behavior. And so they have to keep creating new accounts. And so they've all got like 50 followers or 100 followers, or you might find the odd one that's got 300 followers. So they've really got no clout whatsoever, the detractors. So I just kind of do feel like the most effective thing is to ignore them because Mm -hmm. for every article that goes up about this issue that nobody clicks on, I know because I know how newsrooms work that the next time somebody says, should we do a thing about Michael Jackson? They're going to say no, because the last three times we did it, no one clicked on it. So it's a waste of effort. So I do think that generally speaking, that's the best way forward. Or the other thing I would say is if you are a fan and you see that this is happening and you see that other fans have already, for example, left tweets underneath that say, go and watch square one or go and read this article. That's enough. You don't need 500 people posting links to 500 different things because that becomes completely overwhelming for everyone and actually totally counterproductive. You must be in a difficult position yourself because, you know, you are an award-winning journalist. You have exposed actual pedophile cover-ups in the the Shubury case. And listeners, if you haven't heard it yet, there's a couple of new episodes of Charlie's great podcast, Unfinished. You must be in a difficult position because you know if you reply to something like that or quote it, you will bring quite a bit of attention. You've got almost, you know, I think nearly 10,000 followers now. You are a blue tick. You are a a well-known journalist. So if if you quote something, you will bring attention to it. But at the same time, that's an opportunity for people to be looking on to see actual journalism at work as well. Yeah, I've, I've learned to my cost, unfortunately. I know of which I speak. I've learned that what happens when I wade in, which, uh, no pun intended, which I do sometimes or have done sometimes in the past, what happens is I will send one or two or three quite reasoned fact-based tweets And then what happens is within minutes, I have got lots of fans who follow me sending that journalist abuse, crazy stuff, you know, just just ranting Looney Tune stuff sometimes. And what happens then is that makes me look insane also. And it makes me look like I've incited a pile on. So that makes me the bad person because I am instigating an online mob against this journalist. So I actually feel now unable to enter into these conversations because it reflects so badly on me when fans use my interaction as, a, as like an invitation to behave badly in response to what I've posted. So I've stopped doing that now, unfortunately. And the other thing, I've said this before on the show, but I will say it again, I really don't appreciate fans tagging me into this stuff. I really, really don't appreciate that. And I especially don't appreciate them tagging me and Dan Reed into the same tweets and trying to encourage us to have an argument with each other. That cheeses me off no end. And usually I just block the person that's done that. So I think that if you had a small group of fans who were doing this in a very reasoned and fact-based way, then we would be having a very different discussion. But unfortunately, what usually happens is it descends into 
lots and lots and lots of fans, hundreds or thousands of fans getting involved in quite a fractious and like a bird's nest, just like a bird's nest of different threads of you've got to watch this, you have to watch that, you have to listen to this, read that, how dare you, Michael was an angel, Michael, you know, uh, like the old charity line, Michael Michael donated a squillion, bajillion pounds to charities. So, you know, immediately, immediately what they come back with is, yes, yeah, so did Jimmy Savile. You know, it's just a meaningless. If you're going to do it, you need to do it well. And quite often fans don't do it well. And that's when it becomes counterproductive. Firstly, when they don't do it well. And secondly, when they do it en masse, you know, No journalist is going to respond in a positive way to waking up in the morning and finding 600 tweets from angry Michael Jackson fans. That's not going to persuade them of anything. And also, the other thing I I would say, you should be mindful that Dan Reed is currently making a sequel. And if you're going to the graveyard and you're dancing on Tom Snedden's grave, or if you are sending extremely abusive messages to or about Wade Robson or James Safechuck, or if you are sending death threats to a journalist, for example, or extremely vile abuse to a journalist, I think you should fully expect to find yourself named and shamed and included in Dan Reed's sequel. I would fully expect him to be doing that because that's the kind of person that he is. He is quite a vindictive person. He is somebody that's not above getting involved in online spats and arguments himself. And I do think that part of his MO with this sequel, because of how angry he is about the, the sort of the arguable failure of the first one, I do think he's going to be on the war path. So that's something that people need to be aware of as well. And not only that, but if you're getting that violently involved in a conversation and and making death threats and things like that, that is pretty much 180 degrees from the message that Michael himself was trying to put out there of tolerance and love and acceptance. And I understand that they're talking shit and writing crap about him, but, you know, be selective about how you respond to it. I guess one of the things what Charles says, it's a catch 22 for me because I don't really like being tagged in certain conversations or fights and stuff like that, because then it's like, I'm dragged into like a fight that typically would have ignored. Most of the people now know to DM me, you know, I have channels that way and they'll say, Hey, did you see this article or did you see what this person says? I saw the telegraph thing. I chose not to engage in it for the, exactly the reasons we were just talking about. I didn't want to bring more light to it. I wrote something, never sent it, but I did write something because that's kind of like my therapy Mm -hmm. is I write my thoughts down of what I would want to say and then I never press send on it. But that's like me biting my tongue. But at the same time, then it's like, if I don't say something, then it's like I get all these like apps and these tags of me and like tagging me. Like right now, someone's tagging me with, you know, this known troll and and we're in the same thread. And I'm like, I don't want to even engage with that person because they're a known troll and I don't have time for that. They're in an echo chamber and I'm focused on the truth and getting it out there. Just to say that, yeah, so much of what Charlie said, I so strongly agree with. And that, yeah, I mean, Twitter, as we all know, can become such a cesspool too. And it's really feels like it's ultimately about, you know, how many retweets 
you get. And that's I feel like so many of these articles are just about that and then moving on to the next thing. So so yeah, if there are those moments where you can have actual, which I, I realize this is rare, have those actual like one-on-one organic conversations with somebody, awesome. Otherwise, yeah, giving it air, what does it really accomplish? It can become just a mess so easily. So anyway, Charles said all this very, very well and fully stand by all of that. For sure. Now, Taj, as we sort of come to a close on the episode, you just you just mentioned before about your passion for getting the truth out there and positivity out there about Michael. Can you give our listeners of the MJ cast, you know, a bit of an update on where your documentary is at and moving forward into 2022 and, and what that's looking like? Well, one of the interesting things about 2022 and in general is just I've realized where the docuseries fits in everything that's going on, whether it's the biopic, whether it's the Broadway play. And there's a lot that still has to be covered because they only have a certain amount of time. They have to condense stuff. They have to alter stuff. Well, with this, I'm a strickler for the truth. Like I want this to be something that can be fact-checked back and forth. And also that is the be-all end-all in Semetz's legacy. So for me, that is more important. And yes, I am fighting against time, not because, oh, this has to be out by X amount of time or whatever. It's more of, I want this to be out while my grandma's still here. That's mm-hmm. a very important thing for me. I want her. I mean, I know she's proud in, in general. We are the majority anyway. And that's something that the media, has, the, their trick is making it seem like that we are a minority in terms of Michael's innocence, but we are the majority as, as we've been finding out. And as I are already kind of knew but just the fact of my grandma going places in, in general once this pandemic is over and just ha- not even having to deal with ignorant people. Just I would rather people go up to and apologize to her and be like, you know, I was one of those people that thought so. And I'm just I'm really honored to meet you. And da, da, da. that's what she deserves. That's what you know Michael deserved. That is an important thing to me. Another thing is it's hard because I, I'm in this time where. I love blabbing about what's going on in certain things, especially if I have something exciting to say. But then I love the Janet approach of just like, boom, here's the docuseries that I just did. And no one knew about it as well. Because we, we unfortunately do have a lot of people in Hollywood. And it really concerns me because I've been on this path of securing funds and stuff like that. We have a lot of people working against us in Hollywood that don't want Michael Jackson to be innocent that their narrative and their whether it's for money or just in terms of just Hollywood in general is to paint him as the monster and to keep that narrative going. So that was one of the reasons I've not ever wanted to rely on Hollywood and won't rely on Hollywood. So it's been harder that way because that's Hollywood is such an integral part of getting your not only vision out there, but the project out there. So it's finding new ways to do that. But as Charles said earlier, really, when it comes to traditional media in general, they've lost so much of their power and say people are getting it from alternate um, arenas and areas. And I know that my idea with this docuseries is to get this in the hands of as many people as possible. I want as many people as possible seeing this and understanding the truth And then that way, Michael can be celebrated openly, which he should have been 
a long time ago and not bullied by certain organizations that make people feel bad for celebrating Michael. Yeah, well said. So saying that, because I know that people say he didn't answer the question. The question is, we're still wor- <laughs> we're still working on it. I would love to get it out in, in 2022. It's more likely going to be early tw- 2023, just because of what's going on with the pandemic and stuff like that. And we, but I can say once we crank it up, I'm not planning on stopping. I'm planning on powering through it. It's going to be a marathon, no pun intended, but it's going to be something that. I'm looking forward to because also a lot of the subject people that we're talking to, a lot of the people are older in age. And, and so I want to be very weary of that and, and smart about that in terms of making sure getting their interviews down as well. Bring it on and we'll be there mm. ready to support you yeah. when it's uh, coming out. 100%. Uh, thank you. I mean, here's the thing. This is the project that's been super important to me, not only because it's my uncle, but just because I truly believe it's one of the things that I was meant to do. And just going back, if this was a movie and it's like you go back and you look at all the flashbacks and it's just like my whole life has been leading up to delivering this and delivering it to the point where it not only cements his legacy, but it leaves no oxygen for the other narrative in that way. And and that's yeah. that's it. And if it can't do that, then I shouldn't be doing it. And, and I'm 100%, 120%. 150% confident that this is what I'm destined to do and that's what I will do. Well, you're an incredible man, Taj, and thank you for all the effort you just continually put into defending your family's legacy and Michael's legacy. We're just so lucky as a fan community as well. I think that you're so willing to engage with us as, you know, as fans of of Michael, but also fans of you, you know, we, I love 3T and I love what you and your brothers have done. And, and I just feel like, you know, we're, we're really lucky that you engage with us. A lot of, uh, well, a lot of celebrities don't really do that. They might just, you know, have a little bit of distance between them and their audience, but I feel very lucky we can connect with you. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I give a lot of props to my dad. My dad has always been that person that has never taken himself too serious as a celebrity in that way. I mean, he's a rock and roll hall of famer, but it's the same guy that will coach a little league team or work on his cars, his modern or his old model T cars. And that brings him joy. So he's, he's always been someone that I just respect in that way of he'll, he treats everyone the same. And, and I think that's what you're supposed to do. That's, that's how I grew up. Might have to pick his brain at some point, Taj, because I, I remember listening to the show that he was on, uh, your dad, and he said that he liked coaching baseball and things like that. I just took up baseball recently. I could do with some pointers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You know, baseball is one of the things that I incorporate a lot of my life into because baseball is one of the only sports that really you can be down 20 runs and still be optimistic. Like we're going to come back and win, you know, next inning. Other games, it's like, oh, it's over. It's completely over. But baseball is one of those that you just until – that third strike or that third out, it's like it, the game's not over. And it, and I've seen people come back from that. And that's why I have such an optimistic view in life. Because, look, we could have – when Leaving Neverland came out, which is it was designed to create panic. It was designed to be the end-all and be-all of Michael Jackson's legacy. Not only the firepower, it had the backing of Hollywood behind it. It was like everything was coordinated behind the scenes. The right people were flown up to Sundance to watch it so that they could give, you know, their organizations could could give the blessing of it. So it had everything going for it. What they underestimated was the voice of the fans. And we talked about microphones. The one way to drown out a microphone is is 
by the chorus of the fans. By having those facts and those truths, we not only spoke louder than they did, we, I think, diluted them. Like, in, in all honesty, it was Charles was right in terms of the effectiveness of Leaving Neverland is nothing near what they portray it to be. And I think that's why I sometimes get not upset at fans. But I, I get a little sad that fans are like, oh, you know, it's over. Michael's ne- legacy will never be the same. And people believe it and all that. stuff. It's like they're listening to newspapers and, and they're listening to that same agenda that wants to sell that. If you really ask people behind the scenes, a lot of people would be like, no, I never believed it. Or, I, you know, I don't. I'm a, I, I love still playing Michael Jackson and I, I don't think it's true. Like that's the general consensus, but the media will make you think that everyone has canceled him. Well, that leads nicely actually to, we had a question sent in from Qtaj, which was, what do you think of the success that Michael's had in the last year or two on Spotify and the fact that he's got bigger figures than some of the current stars? Well, I, first of all, love that. But I don't think it's only Spotify. It's Twitter. It's it's TikTok. The younger generation is not as susceptible to the media as the, the older generation is. Like a lot of the elder generation, they look at the media and they're like, "Well, why would the media lie? What did they get out of it?" The younger generation is a lot more skeptical, and they're like, "No, we'll do our own homework. Thank you." They just don't trust what's in front of them, and I think that's been the big difference of what's happening with um, everything that's going on is that. And I, I don't visit TikTok often. Trust me, I don't. And it's not because it's just because it's like one of those things that it could, you could be there for three hours later and wonder what you're doing with your life. <laughs> so I don't go on often, but I do love Michael Jackson trends when they happen, and that when there's been so many trends, and these people are celebrating Michael unapologetically because they're getting info that the media is not giving them. They're getting info about the truth about Michael Jackson being innocent that the media is not getting to them. And they're unashamedly promoting it. They're promoting his legacy and they're promoting his greatness. So I, I love that aspect of it. And his music should be celebrated. But not only his music, him as a human being and what he's done for this world should be celebrated as well. 100%. Agreed. All right. Well, as we wrap this episode, Taj, we were hoping uh, uh, just to talk about a, a last couple little things. First of all, your dad's album, How Good Is It? Yeah. It's so good. His new album. I've been playing it. I just love that blues vibe to it. I suppose you've uh, spent some time listening to it as well, right? Yes. And and I'm so proud of my dad just because, you know, it's his wheelhouse and it's something that he was born to do. And it took a lot of courage for my dad because my dad is someone that had to live in the shadow of greatness in a way and be told by media and other people that you're not great unless you're next to Michael Jackson. He's the great one. You guys are just shadows. And and my dad is carving his own way in that way, and he's being appreciated finally, and so are the other brothers. And so I'm really happy because he, he put together a killer album and – the songs are catchy, but not only catchy, they're blues. It's not Tito Jackson trying to do the blues. Tito Jackson is the blues as well. And he, he encompasses it, which is why it feels so real. And Taj, I have to say, I've seen your dad solo 
concerts and I was like in the front row and he is <laughs> oh, I love it. so amazing. Like you said, he just like embodies the blues and watching he him play yeah. guitar. It's <laughs> like this whole thing and it's just incredible. And yeah. actually the last episode that I hosted, which was a couple months ago, we were talking about the new album and just so much love for it. I mean, it just the energy of it is fantastic. And the further he really gets into embracing this blues side of, of his artistry, I I think I just hope he keeps going in that direction and putting out music that's like just raw and really digs into yeah. that part of his amazing talent because it's just it's great and I think there's a real a really big audience out there for it too that's just going to be eating it up over time so I hope he keeps putting mm. it out there. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I have to really keep reminding him is stop looking at the numbers, like the chart positioning and all that stuff, because he's still very much old school. And he, and I used to be there in that way, but it, and now it's just about you know how many people get to hear it and spreading it around, as opposed to what chart position you ended up in. It's a shame he wasn't able to tour it because when I was at the Jacksons' first gig since the beginning of the pandemic, when they played in the UK in August this year, the day before Michael's birthday, Jermaine used to do a solo set in the shows. Of course, Jermaine's not there at the moment. But so your dad had the solo set and he said, um, uh, are you all ready for Tito time or something like that? And the whole crowd <laughs> yeah, went crazy. And I was oh, like, that's... wow, that's amazing. I didn't realize that Tito as a solo artist had this huge fault, you know, cause normally in a concert by a legends act, if one of the members was to say, and now I'm going to do a song from my new album, everyone would go, all right, I'm going to go to the bar then. Or <laughs> yeah. Something. I'm going to make but, it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But when, but when your dad was like, are you all ready for Tito time? People went nuts. It was really great. And yeah. actually I was, I was slightly miffed with your dad. I've got to say, because when I was at that gig, I got my friend Lawson, who works with your dad and your uncles when they're on the road in Europe. I got him to get your dad to sign a copy of the CD for me. And I was like, I'm probably the, this is the middle of a pandemic. I'm probably the only person that's got this, that's got a signed copy. And then he started selling them on the internet. I was like, damn. So uh, <laughs> I love <laughs> it. Was ruined. That was my fortune ruined. If it makes you feel better, Charlie, I, I missed out on that sale because what I was going to do is is buy one and get it personalized, but we hadn't settled on the name for our bub at that point. <laughs> so we hadn't 100% confirmed in the name Josie, and by the time we had, the sale had finished. So uh, if that makes you feel better at all. It makes me feel much better. No, it doesn't. But, um, <laughs> by the way, as an offshoot from my gripe about that concert and losing my exclusive signed CD. There is something that the fans are talking about a lot, which you might be able to help out with uh, as a family insider. What's up with Jermaine? Is Jermaine okay? Because he's just completely disappeared from the group in terms of their touring schedule for a couple of years now, and sort of seems to have disappeared, apart from a brief appearance in your dad's music video, actually. He seems to have just completely gone off the grid and there's some speculation that he might be ill or something like that. So is Jermaine okay? Do you know? Um, I can only tell you from what, you know, from WhatsApp messages and stuff like that. He seems fine to me and, and he's always checking in, especially if there's a birthday party coming up or 
of my daughters or whatever. He um, texts me happy birthday to them and all that stuff. He's been amazing in that way. I think he's just enjoying life out there. I don't know where he is in the Middle East, but he's in the Middle East somewhere, last I heard. And I never really asked him, like, where are you? In that way, I'm just like, but I've never, I've always been like that. I've never asked any of my family, like, oh, where exactly are you in the world right now? It's just, I just appreciate them and I respect their space. But from what I know, he's doing perfectly fine. And I love that man to death. And he's told me so many incredible stories of, you know, young Jackson five stories of that, that song, uh, if that's how love goes, which I still play to this day, probably twice every month in that way, but it was like a live at the forum version of it. And he's playing bass and singing at the same time. And I asked him one time, I'm like, like at that age, as a young teenager, how are you doing that? Like, that's something professionals can't do. And he's playing the same um, notes and riffs that professional Motown people played on, on the record. And he's like, he's like, Joe, he's like, we, we had, there was no other option. We had to get it right. It had to be perfect. And that's all he said. And so that taught me there's natural talent, but then there's also blood, sweat, and tears. I've always cherished my relationship with my uncle Jermaine. I love him to death. So I'm assuming he's doing great. I would know if he wasn't. Great. Thank you. That's good. All right. Now, of course, in true MJ cast Christmas special tradition, let's cut to some of those bloopers from season seven. Oh, well, I think with Karen, he always made fun of her chin. You know, she had that big double chin. <laughs> if you happen to be living in... <laughs> Mallorca? Mallorca, which is, hang on, I'm just on this MJ vibe. I can't figure out where that is. Spain. All right. Cool. Of course, because that's where he's from. That's where he's from, right? Yeah, Marco's from Mallorca. Charlie, Uh, edit this out. I'm a geography teacher. Edit this out, please. Cut all this out, please. I. How do I say Talitha's last name? Leanhan? I'm not sure. Anybody know? Mm. (laughs) Leanhan? 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 Anyway, it doesn't matter. Leanhan? Q is texting me needing, needing a toilet break. So, yes. um, <laughs> please. Now, now wanna, Sean, do you want to miss anything? Do you need a toilet miss. break? We can we can take a quick one. Okay, let's take a quick yeah. one. And Bjorn, did you get to actually do anything on MJ's B day? Sadly, I did not. Mm. No. Oh, I'm sorry, Carter. Did you get a chance to talk about Billy Jane? Yeah, yeah. yeah you already yeah. did. Oh, I just had a brain fart moment. Okay. Um. (laughs) So with all of our special guests, we like to go way back to the beginning. So to blah, sorry, let me start that over. Plus, of course, his, you know, first public appearance, well, his first public, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry. I need you. (laughs) Hang on. I need you to say, I love you in a few, (laughs) in a few ways, (laughs) but I want you to say it like Michael says it at the end of Speechless. Oh god. Cuz you're 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 poking fun of that and you did it really loud and it blew the microphone out. So just do it a, a few more times. I love you. <laughs> Hugh, are you there? You Can you hear us? No, Walk he's towards gone. the lights. Oh dear god. What happened? I don't know. <laughs> I was waiting for him to finish his thought. Yeah, I was I was too. Oh no, what happened? Oh. 
Hello. Oh, sorry. That's okay. A friend was trying to call and it disconnected me. Oh, no. oh dear God. <laughs> we were hanging on to every word and we were oh, waiting for you God. to end the sentence. Where, did, <laughs> where do I get, where, where did you hear up to? Just a couple of times. Shackleford. Shackleford. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> depending uh, depending on where you are in the world, it could be Shackleford or Shackleford. Shackleford. <laughs> I completely lost my train of thought. Charlie, <laughs> Carter, <laughs> you're going to rescue me here. Yes. Um, I know some people won't want to hear this. Oh, it was, did I start the right place? Wait, am I doing the wrong letter? No, that's the wrong. That's the oh, email. Oh, wait, which page is that on? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I don't have the book in front uh, of me. Hold on. So I, had it, I had it. Oh, here, here it is. Wait. Uh, <laughs> I think I found it. Yeah, and you certainly see that kind of. Um, oh, God, I'm going to sneeze. Hang on. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, um, Sorry, my headset was muted. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought maybe you were talking. I'm talking here, too. and you guys are going to. Are you going to lean? I'm like, I'm, but I'm talking. Sorry, my. That's okay, okay. like oh, you're okay, there now. Would you like to sensitive. jump in on that uh, point? What yeah. did you? Oh, the uh, yeah. Um, I forget what the, the very is. first time we knew anything. Yeah, was yeah, on. yeah. Sean, I just need you to say the word uneven for me. Uneven. Can you say it a couple more times? Uneven. Uneven. Thank you. I'm going to edit that back in. All right. right. Um, <laughs> just in case you were wondering whether I just have a thing about the word uneven, I just like to hear it. But, uh, <laughs> we hope you put that in there evenly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was just the funny things he could do with people that would just crack you up. All right, Charlie Carter, cut that bit out. (laughs) Edit that out, Charlie. Just interrupting the show here, Charlie Carter, make sure to cut this out. Cut all this out, Charlie. Um, So what I want to do now is just before we move to the next topic, and Charlie, you can, Carter, you can cut this a little bit out of the show as well, this little handover. Um, Guys, just going to interrupt real quickly there, uh, Charlie Carter, make sure you cut this out. Charlie Carter, take this out of the show. All righty. So moving on to the next topic and just interjecting here, Charlie, cut this out. Charlie, please cut this out of the show, what I'm about to say was he oh my god i should know this this charlie cut this out well carter is that good is that good enough for you huh (laughs) 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 oh my god oh they were great they were great all right well that brings us to the end of our 2021 christmas special thank you so much for everybody coming along and taj especially thank you it's been great being able to talk to you again thank you for having me that's uh, totally fine. Well, we've got another exciting season ahead next year. We're starting to talk about what kind of episodes we want to do. We want to go back in time a little bit and look at some of those classic Jacksons type things. And we're hoping to hopefully get some more special guests on the show. This year's been a bit challenging with that. We've had a few people locked in that uh, maybe haven't turned up when they said they would and uh, <laughs> different things. So it's, yeah, that's been fun. Um, <laughs> but um, hopefully next year we'll, we'll, uh, Uh, be able to have a few more collaborator interviews again that would be wonderful and maybe some jackson family members and yeah it should be really good all right if listeners want to connect with us online they can find us of course at the mj cast on all of the different social media platforms twitter instagram facebook we're on podcast applications if you search the mj cast google podcasts apple podcasts spotify all over the internet. We love to be contacted. If you want to email us, we're at themjcast at icloud.com. Thank you for all the incredible love and support 
from everybody. We cherish all of our listeners and uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without listeners who are so passionate about what we do and spreading the news about our episodes. So thank you for that and all of the communication online, uh, especially on our recent episode, Invincible 20. That's kind of just blown up. Last night I was looking at the charts and it was number 20 in the Apple Podcasts music charts. So very, very uh, you know happy about that. So thank you, everybody, for supporting that particular show. It's a great episode. Be sure to listen to it if you haven't. It's awesome. Yeah. So uh, have a great Christmas break, everybody, and relax with your families and enjoy opening presents and getting together and that holiday cheer. And we will be back in 2022 with season eight of the MJ cast. Can't wait. That's it from me. Keep Michaeling. Happy holidays, MJ fam. We love you. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Happy holidays, everyone. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, say something funny so we can laugh. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God.